Okay, so I'm going to call the meeting to order. Uh, our uh, president, um, Trustee DeVries, will be about 10, 15, 10, 30. So in his stead, I'm going to be um, facilitating just this part. So um, would you call the roll, please? Sure. Uh, Trustee DeVries is not here yet. Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee Hernandez? Here. Trustee Alvalada? Here. Trustee Bouquet is not here today. Trustee Charland is not here. Uh, Trustee Shequin. Here. Trustee Jensen. Here. And Trustee Peterson. Here. We have a quorum. Great. Thank you, Rene. Welcome, Trustees, members of the staff team and guests. Uh, this is our um, first retreat of the year, and we've changed our format a little bit to go from the two um, day, one and a half day retreats to this to have day long retreats. So, big thanks to Trustee Hernandez, who has taken a made an um, planning for this and to um, Tangerine who is doing a big part of it. So this, the purpose of this as always is to do things that we don't get a chance to do during the usual business meeting. So we'll have a, a chance to dive deep into things that are of see the landscape, understand our own opportunities, challenges, and what we need to do with some of um, the big things that are on the horizon. So Tangerine will be talking about population health, and then we'll be doing a little bit on compliance and end with the course session. We do have photo things to happen during the lunchtime, so folks just remember we're going to have to get some headshots and pictures taken during that. <laughs> So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dalmikia. Great. Thank you, Trustee Benjamin. Uh, good morning, trustees. Happy New Year. Uh, I think I've seen all of you in committees, although I missed you last week at the full board meeting, uh, or most of you in committees. Um, I don't want to take a lot of time because, as uh, Trustee Benjamin said, um, I want to thank uh, Trustee Hernandez for this uh, piloting of this new approach um, uh, the for uh, one day versus the two, two um, uh, day and a half meetings. Um, I do want to uh, thank, uh, uh, you know, I think today's a sort of a healthy blend of looking at uh, some internal or ongoing uh, fiduciary uh, responsibilities in terms of things like uh, compliance and understanding our uh, responsibilities there, but then also a good uh, lens in terms of internal uh, look at what we're doing in population health and, uh, and in the space and how that compares to uh, sort of things that are going on um, across the market and across the industry, as well as uh, kind of a timely look at the fact that we have a, a new administration uh, and one that has sent some really strong early signals that health and welfare are going to be important uh, uh, issue areas for this particular governor and that there's a lot of opportunities for synergy and partnership along the sort of strategic and uh, value-based uh, direction that we have as an organization. So uh, we'll give you uh, a lens into that work. And to that end, I'd like to uh, thank the board for your uh, support of my participation and representation of the organization and uh, uh, statewide and, and national uh, organizations like uh, the California Hospital Association, CAPH, and uh, now the American Hospital Association, um, um, and, which is why I wasn't with you uh, last week uh, for the first board meeting for the year. It is a wonderful opportunity to really uh, not just kind of stay abreast of uh, uh, things that are going on impacting us industry-wide, um, um, which are quite important, things like uh, surprise billing and some of the things I've told you about, 340B and uh, 
uh, just the future direction of uh, uh, public financing and quality and all those things in healthcare. Deliver, but a great chance to really bring our uh, vantage point and our lens and our values to those uh, to those tables, which is oftentimes either uh, not represented or, or underrepresented. So um, just a wonderful opportunity to kind of uh, be a, a, a bridge from uh, this board and this community to uh, uh, policymakers and leaders at the state level and at the at the federal level. So um, I did promise uh, um, uh, Trustee DeVries that uh, that those those sort of conflicts should be few and far uh, between, and uh, will do my um, uh, level best to make sure that that doesn't happen often. I think over the course of the year it may happen once or twice more, but we can uh, talk about that. Uh, but but otherwise, uh, obviously, uh, continue to stay focused on what we're doing here in the organization, of which there's a lot, uh, and you got some updates from me uh, to, uh, in that vein. So uh, we'll continue to try to uh, refine that, and I look forward to talking to you about uh, how useful that is or how uh, we might um, um, uh, improve that to make sure you have a good lens on what's going on in your organization as well. Uh, but with that, I really want to you know, uh, um, uh, yield and um, I'm always happy to discuss anything I mention or anything I don't uh, that you're interested in and just look forward to a, a good day of kind of deep, doing some deep dive on some important topics. So with that, thank you. I'm just curious, how many uh, public hospital representatives are on those boards that you're serving on? So great question. So obviously for uh, uh, things like um, uh, COPH and the uh, America's Central Hospitals, it's largely safety net organizations. Oh. Uh, AH actually uh, is a blend because uh, um, it's, it's organizations that take care of a, a fair amount or a uh, considerable amount of uh, a sort of dish uh, eligible uh, uh, organizations. So um, it can be uh, a lot of academic medical centers and sometimes community hospitals that have uh, a huge uh, underserved population that they're caring for. For the American Hospital Association, very different. And uh, right now, though, um, uh, fortuitously, uh, so there's a plan. Obviously, you have urban hospitals, you have rural hospitals, you have federal hospitals, you have uh, critical access, all, all those sorts of things. Um, of the, I'm going to say roughly 20 or so members of the AHA right now, uh, there's three that represent um, um, uh, our type of public hospital. So I am now a board member. The CEO of Grady Hospital, uh, Grady Health System is on the board. And a, a person you all are familiar with, uh, Wright Lassiter, who is the CEO of Henry Ford Health System, which is actually a not-for-profit system, but has a, um, a cares for a disproportionately underserved population in the Detroit area, uh, is also a board member. So, so fairly uh, good representation. Actually, I added a third because it, uh, before that, it was just the two of them. So Wonderful. Good. Very good. So is it Tangerine? Yeah. So with that, we'll turn it over. Tangerine's uh, going uh, She's done some great work, and I want to thank uh, Trustee Fernandez uh, for offering some uh, context of, of trying to tailor this conversation to uh, providing a great lens to you around updates of what we have done, what we're currently doing, and where we, where we uh, see this going in a broader context. So I'll turn it over to Tangerine. Great. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Is this all? You can hear me? Yes. Wonderful. And I'd also like to thank Trustee Hernandez and Trustee Banerjee for the uh, conference call that we had prior to this. So hopefully um, what I'll be discussing today uh, touches on all of those topics. Um, I would like this to be a discussion and conversation, so please feel free at any time to interrupt me. I have strategically placed some questions in a few slides. Um, those are meant to really prompt um, our thinking um, as we move forward.
So I, I thought I'd start off with uh, this cartoon um, because I, I think it, it says everything. Um, it is all about the right incentives. <laughs> it's about the right incentives if you have children. It's about the right incentives uh, with your employees. And certainly, that's the case with, uh, with health care. I don't think any of us would want, as this caption uh, shows, someone starting up smoking just to get a financial incentive from their employer. That's sort of how you phrase and how you uh, position things. And that's what we're talking about in healthcare. And that's one, really one of the reasons why we and all of our safety net partners and even in the commercial side are moving towards value-based payments. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about our work in that area. So we'll um, go through the topics so sort of broadly, our activities to date. Um, we'll talk about how um, we see EPIC enhancing our ability to do population health and just give a sense of what we see on the horizon. So um, we like to divide our work within the, this particular SBU into four broad categories to date. There is the transition to risk-based payments, which we'll be talking about, um, how we partner to enhance um, access and capacity within the, the delivery system, certainly working with um, our ambulatory care partners, our uh, acute care partners, post-acute care partners, and certainly with um, other delivery systems outside of AHS. Uh, thirdly, it's how we can do, and we'll be able to do much more of this certainly with EPIC, using data to really risk stratify our population to get a sense of not only what the current utilization um, shows us, but being able to use that utilization to predict uh, moving forward who we think will be those individuals who are high utilizers, high cost individuals for whom we may have to do additional touches, be that in patient navigation, care management, et cetera. And then uh, finally, how we assist in social determinants of health. And all of that really um, goes into our overall mission and consistent with that. So some key questions that I'm posing today for us to discuss sort of What's been our achievement to date um, based on the strategic plan that was adopted by uh, the organization? You know, how successful have those efforts been and what opportunities still exist? So the broader context is that reimbursement is a significant driver of our healthcare delivery decisions and transformation. I think it would be naive for us to think otherwise. Um, that's how um, we're able to keep abreast of all of the various changes that are occurring in the healthcare market. So value-based payment, um, what is it and, and how are we doing it in, uh, in our delivery system? Really, it is designed to ensure that healthcare providers are accountable for two things the quality of care and the cost of care. The primary mechanism for value-based purchasing is contracting. Uh, contracting as providers with health plans or other government uh, entities. And there are really two forms of value-based purchasing. Um, one is the alternative payment model, which we'll talk about a lot today. And the second is pay for, for, pay for performance, which we also participate um, in. And then they're all focused on two things, effective care and efficient care, sort of right 
patient, the right treatment, right time, right professional. I think we've all heard horror stories of someone where um, there wasn't a double check on the name uh, of the patient and somehow someone gets operated on on the wrong side, <laughs> on the wrong day, by the wrong professional. We certainly don't want that to happen. And then, you know, with respect to efficiency, how do we ensure that we've got all the processes, workflows in place to standardize the delivery of care uh, across the system so everyone gets um, the same level? So let's focus on alternative payment models. Some of you have heard uh, this uh, before, um, so I'll try to be brief on this slide. You know, we have participated in this county in Medi-Cal managed care since the very beginning, 1997, so over uh, 20 uh, years of participation. Primarily that has been in the fee-for-service world. Um, with the 2020 Medi-Cal waiver, the state was very clear about shifting the reimbursement mechanisms for public delivery systems participating in Medi-Cal. Um, and so we are required to have an alternative payment model with at least one of our Medi-Cal managed care plans. And if we do not meet that requirement, we lose some of our prime funding. I'm not going to get into prime, you know what prime is. And obviously that is not the intent. And we are um, in cahoots, so to speak, with our other uh, public system partners. Um, they also have to fulfill this requirement. If they don't fulfill this, that requirement, we also lose. And so this was an effort really to say it is not um, facility specific, it's not delivery system specific, it is for the entire public hospital system. And we all have to participate. And you'll see that we have actually met that goal. Uh, we have, as of uh, last month, uh, 60,000 Medi-Cal managed care lives. 80% of them are with Alameda Alliance. The remainder with Anthem Blue Cross. How are the other institutions doing? The other um, hospitals—they've uh, uh, all met the requirement. Now, some of them have met it uh, differently. Some of them have already met it, uh, met the the provision. So, for example, San Francisco um, has been uh, cap fully capitated, global cap, uh, since 1997 with uh, the San Francisco Health Plan. Uh, Los Angeles was global cap uh, with both of its health plan partners. Some of the other delivery systems have done what we have done, and I'll be talking about it a little later, um, is migrated just to primary care capitation. Uh, some have done bundled payments based on certain services. Um, so I, I know our partners uh, at Natividad uh, decided to do global, uh, a, um, a global payment uh, related to bariatric. Um, and so that's how they're taking um, their risk. Yeah. But we all met the provision. So how did we undo it? There were three components that were required. We had to first define uh, the population, and we decided to go with Alameda Alliance because we have 80% of our members uh, with that health plan. The second uh, provision was we have to have a quality component. APM is about both quality and cost, um, and we do have that. Uh, the Alliance has had for many years a Pay for performance program, P4P program that focuses primarily on HEDIS measures. A few other things are primarily HEDIS, so we met that provision. And then we had to outline the financial risk. Um, we decided to move uh, prudently and just focus on primary care uh, capitation. 
uh, as opposed to going global, which would include primary care, specialty, and inpatient. You can see the phased implementation. We started the planning in September of 2017. And you can see, um, starting in April of last year, um, we started with Newark. Um, the number with the K represents the number of managed care lives that we have with Alliance at that particular medical center. Um, we are scheduled to transition our last wellness center, Highland, into capitation on March 1st, so a month uh, from today. And then we'll have a conversation with Anthem to see about their willingness to also migrate um, their Medi-Cal managed care members into capitation for pri the primary care setting. Um, because from a, a, a um, staffing perspective, in terms of uh, making sure that it's easy for our staff at the wellness centers, at registration, coding, it's easier to have everyone on the same system as opposed to thinking about, well, I have to code differently because this individual is fee-for-service anthem versus someone who is uh, capitated uh, alliance. Can you? Yeah. Um, what about, what's the incentive for anthem to do so or to not do so? So um, they would probably be more likely to want to do global cap than primary cap um, because of the potential of shifting some of the costs and the risk to us. That's the primary reason why any health plan would want to go capitation. So you're not expecting any challenges in migration, at least to primary? When you say challenges to migration, could you? For them to migrate to primary care capitation. No, no, I mean, they would probably um, prefer that we do it all, but we might, uh, we would first go with primary. I, I don't think that they would be um, challenged by it. I think the, the one thing we might have in terms of a challenge with going to primary care capitation with Anthem is that Anthem does not provide to date what's called an electronic eligibility file, which the Alliance does. and that provision of that electronic eligibility file makes it very easy to um, track the patients, put them into our system, do the reconciliation with the capitation rate. Anthem is going towards the electronic files, um, but they are statewide, and so we're not sure where Alliant, whether where um, Alameda falls in that transition for all the various counties that they participate in. So above and beyond the P for uh, P quality-based metrics um, that we have always had with the Alliance, the Alliance was very interested in um, participating in uh, primary care capitation if we could also focus on improving our access to primary care. And so the Alliance required us to have additional performance metrics as a part of our movement towards capitation, and you see them here. Um, one is the initial health assessment, which is essentially a visit that has to occur within a certain period of time after someone is initially enrolled in Medi-Cal managed care. And the reason why the state has this requirement is to ensure that their uh, Medi-Cal beneficiaries are getting a service because they're paying the health plan in advance. And so they want to understand that that individual has had a service. And so the idea is making sure 
that there is some documentation of at least some face-to-face uh, -face visit within a certain period of time. For adults, it's within 120 days of enrollment. So our rate is lower than the health plan's overall average, and so they wanted us to increase that. Primary care visits overall, mm -hmm. um, which is essentially the metric is essentially primary care visits uh, per member per thousand over an annual basis. We were um, lower than the health plan's overall average and request that we increase uh, that. Um, In-network specialty utilization, we've talked about this before. Um, I think last year we had a presentation um, on this, really trying to increase the number of specialty care visits that occur within our delivery system as opposed to being referred out. And um, you see on the monthly uh, true growth metric, uh, the data uh, showing how we're improving in that particular area. Uh, third next available uh, appointments, which is one that we put um, just around return visits, and we're doing quite well in that area. And then emergency visits per thousand. Um, this is probably the trickiest of the metrics, in part because of the federal and state definition of what constitutes an emergency. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, and if an individual falls with an emergency, um, then they can uh, go to the emergency room. We have a layperson's definition. So it is uh, not always within the control of the delivery system um, to uh, be able to control that particular um, patient-seeking behavior. We really want to, over time, have this focus on solely um, prime, uh, emergency room visits that are due to ambulatory care sensitive conditions, right? Because some portion of emergency visits are in fact true emergencies and we should not be held to that provision. So um, the health plan is interested in going that direction and I think it will just be, uh, take a little bit of time while we massage the data and look at the data more carefully. Do we have a sense of the delta between ambulatory um, versus what we actually are experiencing? Sure. So it depends upon the wellness center, and it depends upon um, their provision of uh, of services over during the weekend. So, for example, I think um, the average for the health plan may be, you know, around six hundred. Uh, Per, per member per visit per thousand. Um, and so for Newark, they're far below that. Um, and I think in part because Newark has weekend hours and so individuals um, will not go to a emergency room, be it either AHS or another uh, emergency room. Um, Highland, it's much higher than the health plan um, average. And so we're looking into and we'll sort of figure out how much of it is where the, when they're getting emergency services? Are they getting emergency services during the day when they could have been diverted to a primary care clinic? That's something of a concern. If they're going for emergency services at 8 o'clock at night when the primary care is closed, that's a whole different discussion, right? And so we have to dig a little bit deeper into the data. I have a question. Yeah. Um, do we have anything in place that helps us assess the appropriateness of ER visits? So is there sort of this many, this percentage is inappropriate and this percentage was warranted? But right, so that's what to be built. Yeah, it has to be built. Because okay. we're relying on the health plan because we only have emergency room visits when they occur in our delivery system. Um, an individual can go to any emergency department. 
you know, forward for service. Our, I'm oh, for ours, mm -hmm. right. So we haven't done that uh, level of analysis yet, but certainly that will be part of the process. And I, I think it'll, it'll also should be contingent on a number of factors. There's, there's, a, there's a sort of clinical um, uh, assessment of whether the, uh, uh, the condition or what the presenting condition for the patient was ambulatory sensitive in the sense that it could be handled in an outpatient context, but there's also, so there's the acuity score of, you know, one, the level of urgency of the matter, but then there's also then the, the concept of was this something that even if it was uh, uh, ambulatory sensitive to tenderness, what was the timeliness of the access that might have been also spurred, like if let's say that someone had reached out and said, you know, I, I need an appointment because I have this rash or, or something or another, and uh, the available appointment was a week away, and that person decided that night, I may still have that appointment, but I need to go do something now. So it's, it'll be a little bit uh, of a, 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 a bit of a judgment call to kind of figure out like how many of those were ambulatory sensitive and available to be treated within a reasonable amount of time for that individual. So a little bit of a subjective piece there, but I do, I do think that uh, there probably are some uh, 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 models out there that we could use to at least get some general estimate and then know that there's some subjectivity to it. Mm -hmm. Tangerine, uh, I noticed that I think St. Rose opened um, a clinic, an urgent care clinic right on the campus. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that's so they could also, at the ED, refer people over to the urgent care when it's really not an emergency. Do we do that now mm -hmm. as well? Are we moving? We have stairs. Oh, okay. like the same day clinic, yeah. Yeah, oh, okay. That's so, what that's for. Yeah. I guess that brings up a question. Are, so are same day clinic and urgent care type of um, settings within, are, are those considered in the primary care cap mm -hmm. or those else? No, they're not. Okay. And then uh, there's something there's something about FQs that we we can't call them urgent cares, right? We have to call them same day access. Right. I thought there was something about the designation. So even though like our main site is here, there was some uh, there's some exclusion or preclusion that 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 even for for our sites that are the FQs, we couldn't have like what we call urgent care, like traditional urgent care at those sites. It actually have to just be. Same-day access in those sites. Right, same-day. So um, our FQHC status, I don't think there is an FQHC status for urgent care. Right. Um, so um, if that's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. that's what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. And, and just to get as granular but not too more. <laughs> that's okay. We've got time. Just to understand, what would be, on average, the capitation dollar for primary care per person okay. from Alameda? So, um, I'm going to answer the question uh, this way. In some respects, um, the capitation dollar itself um, is not the relevant figure to focus on when you are an FQHC. Because when you're a fairly qualified health center, you are uh, guaranteed a particular rate per visit. And let's just say in the example, we'll use with about $250 per visit. You get that amount irrespective of whether you're capitated or not capitated. So what that essentially means is that previously when we were fully FQHC fee for service prior to capitation, if Luis came in for a visit um, to one of our wellness centers, um, and we had a fee-for-service rate with uh, the health plan. Um, we would bill 
that health plan for that fee-for-service visit. The difference between that $250 in FQHC and the amount that we received from the health plan for that visit would be billed to the state. So that the combination of the amount we get from the health plan plus the state would equal that federally designated rate of $250. So is that clear before I go to what happens under CAP? Is that, is that clear? Yeah. 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 You're looking like it's not clear. No, I'm just stunned. That's all. That's OK. <laughs> OK. That's all right. Your lack of clarity and stun face look awfully stunned. <laughs> I'll use that whenever I do it. <laughs> <laughs> so that so that's what happens under fee for service. So we always get our FQHC rate. Under capitation, what will happen is that instead of getting from the health plan a fee for service rate, we get a capitated rate per member per month. Mm -hmm. And let's just say that Luis is the uh, sickly. <laughs> and at, let's just say. Let's just say. Let's just say. And at 250 bucks a visit, let's say he had eight visits over the course of a year, so that would be $2,000, right? Okay. So we would generally get $2,000 a year from him. Let's just imagine that the capitation rate is. 30 bucks a month. I'm just making visually matter if the number is just for example. It's 30 bucks a month. So we would get 360 from capitation, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to really ensure when we're billing the state for the difference, right? So it's 2,000 minus 360, which gives us six, 1,640. We're, we're all clear on the 1640 yeah. That's how much we would get from the state because Luis continues to have eight visits a year, right? Because it's really based on the number of visits. So the capitation rate plus the visits, the number of visits and the rate associated with those visits gives us our continued FQHC rate. Now, what that does mean in capitation is sometimes people think that, oh, you're capitated, you're getting the dollars in advance, you can you know, rest on your laurels and not provide any services. When you are FQHC and your revenues are dependent upon visit, it is imperative that we keep our visit volume high, not only because we want to ensure that we provide access to care, and appropriate access to care so that people don't necessarily, with a lack of primary care, end up in the emergency room. But we also want to do it because it's tied to our revenue and our revenue base. Is that, is that clear? Yes. And there's a subtle, there's a subtle uh, piece that, that I want to make sure you call from what yeah. you're doing, uh, I think, brilliantly described is the visits have to be remain at a high level. The visits for Luis don't necessarily have to remain at that same high level. It's, a, it's global. So, so, so now, yeah, I'm, I'm getting a PMPM per member per month for Luis and you know, countless other individuals, up to the thousands of people we have, and 
And somehow, I, we need to ensure that we are making sure that appropriately, those individuals are getting enough visits. There is a kind of a weird paradox that we have to run up against, though. Here is like, so across the board, if on balance, uh, uh, those individuals, we could, through proactive care management and other sorts of tools that you use in population health, bring those visits down for everybody. Then we run the risk, though, that if we don't find other people who need access and get care, uh, which we have to figure out how to both fund the care management for these people and the outreach to those other individuals, too, yeah. it becomes actually a perverse incentive. And it becomes a conundrum for us to manage that sort of runs afoul of kind of the more pure driver of you want to do population health because right. on its on its face that's the right way to go because the underpinnings of this are still tied to visits and tied to a fee-for-service component of it that's fairly significant. So, so, so just so, so I understand. Go ahead. So what happens if you provide more services where there's actually not not a, you know, you build you bill rate minus, you know, your, your rate the, the residual is uh, billed to the state, right? Mm -hmm. Do you ever run into a situation where you go over that number of visits? For accuracy, so let me just accuracy and non-accuracy. So if you go over, that's fine because you're, you're going to be compensated for that additional visit. Correct. Right? There's no cap for the number right. of visits. The cap is only the, the, the amount of visits. Exceeded. Right, right. right. Okay, so yeah. once you hit that, that ceiling, that's it. Right, right. No, there's no, there's no ceiling. So, um, I think what you're probably thinking of is if we were not fully qualified health center. Mm -hmm. So let's think of either primary care or specialty where we're not in acute so we don't have this designated rate that we're supposed to see. Mm -hmm. You have a fee-for-service rate. And let's say your rate would we'll stick with $50 for a specialty visit. You decide to capitate. So you have to spend a lot of time in analysis trying to figure out what you think your visit volume will be in the future right and develop a capitation rate that will equal that fee for service fifty dollars okay. okay now let's just say you underestimated how many visits you were going to uh, do in a particular year for a particular person in that case you would likely lose money because your capitation rate is fixed that's what's fixed but your costs continue to increase because you had only projected that you would have four visits per year on average for all of your members, and it turns out you had six visits per year. And so that's where you lose money. And we're going to talk about that later on when we think about going towards specialty where we are not capitating. I'm sorry, we're not FQHC. So where else are we not FQHC? Is, are we not FQHC? Are we not FQHC in any of our primary care settings that are going to capitation? No. So all of our, all four of our wellness centers are FQHCs, and they are capitated for clients. What? You should take the moment to point out. Right, but we're not going capitation. Yes, the ones that we are. Are all capitated, like you just said. But Alameda isn't, and we're not. Right. So, I'm in a ramp, Marina. Marina Wellness. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
So I guess I'm just having a hard time understanding really the significance of this because it's really not exactly an alternative payment model. We're getting paid the same at the end of the day, but it's a maybe a cash flow difference or what's the end game here? I mean, it's a cash flow difference. difference. Yeah. It's, it's a, a cash, cash flow, flow difference. difference. So really right. in terms of our uh, approach or our care or our, I mean, nothing really is going to change. I mean, in terms of it's just a matter of right it's just a, it's really just a cash flow it's really not an alternative payment mechanism at the end of the day for us as an FQHC because everything gets reconciled at the end so there's two so that's correct on the FQHC side but not correct when we talk to about the APM metrics because in the APM metrics you'll see the third bullet we actually do have risk yes. for those and so on those particular metrics there actually is a downside for us. So for the specialty. No, for the five. For the five. Okay, five. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, so there is some clawback if you don't get uh, it. Exactly. Okay. So, so you are correct. If we don't, and upside if we do. Okay. okay. You're correct on the FQHC payment. Yeah. That there is no risk from that perspective. But because we have additional performance metrics. Okay we have a risk component there. So they built in a different risk component, but yes. the capitation in and of itself is really not adding any. And that's because we're like FQHC. Because you're an FQHC. Right. And so if, and just making sure I'm crystal clear here, if for whatever reason our capitation payments exceeded what we build in visits, then we would owe that back to the state. And that's a risk. That's yes. a risk. Right, got it. Okay. That's an inherent risk. And that's why we want to keep our visits high, because we don't want to pay the state back at the end of any reconciliation period. Okay, thanks. Again, we don't necessarily want Luis to keep his visits up. No, we don't. We want to see more people <laughs> and we want him to get better. We, we want, want him to get, get better. better. We do. So there is a philosophical uh, uh, mind shift that, that occurs, but your point is exactly the point that we sort of struggle with and that a lot of organizations struggle with when we gradually move into these different uh, payment methodologies that even if, like, for example, for us on the delivery side, so tend to, I think, are you going to talk about uh, the the, the fee for service component from the plan side in terms of like bill rates uh, to even under this construct. Like, I, I don't want to say it if you are, but well, I, go. You go. You, no, you go. You, you can explain this. Okay. The, how the rates are developed. And yeah, yeah, in terms yeah. of just the challenge with even just this whole construct of, of going towards population health when you have these kind of, at the end of the day, you further draw down and there's still some fee for service underpinning to it. Right. Yeah. So the way the state um, contracts with health plans is that um, it's capitated across the board. Mm -hmm. But the health plans have the ability to either capitate or do fee-for-service for their members, right? Um, their capitation rates um, that they receive from the state, everything is based on volume, as we're talking about, right? And so when the volume, and because they're not providers, they're relying on the data from us to give them a sense of what um, services have been rendered. When that volume has decreased, and it has been over time um, since the ACA was signed uh, back in, or implemented back in January 2014, their rates have decreased over time um, for uh, the, the services that they provide. That has, in fact, uh, affect that the rates that they're able to provide us uh, in our delivery system. And so there is an impact um, to um, the rate development at the state level, our provision of services, their capitation rates, and what they in turn can offer us. Is that what you were talking yes, about? Yes, exactly. Got it. Thank you. Okay. 
So as I was saying, um, there is a risk component to these APM metrics. And you know, if we're able, each of the metrics, so it's a 5%, and each of those five, um, I'll make it simple, let's just say each of them is 1% of the 5%. And depending upon whether or not we meet the particular metric in each of those, we either uh, get a additional payout or uh, a clawback uh, in our uh, the capitation that we received. Okay, and we've developed a tracking tool um, and those kinds of things. What I wanted to do was to spend some time on the next uh, few slides talking about um, one of the critical components of population health when we think of it broadly and more specifically population health management, which is really knowing who your population is, outreaching to that population and managing. I want to talk about the outreach component because if you're not able to do the outreach component, even if you know them, you're going to be challenged in doing your population health activities well. And so I wanted to take a little bit of time to, to talk about what we're doing around the IHA. So that's... Oh, sorry. Just before we go there, the only one I don't really understand in terms of the performance metrics is the, and sorry if I missed it, is the primary care visits. What, what's the metric that we're trying to hit with that's Sure. It's the number of primary care visits per year per member. Okay. And is there a, is that, depends on their diagnosis, and depends on a multiple It's just volume. It's complete volume. So they want to see an average of two, so two right. visits per year. Exactly. Person. Okay. Exactly. Got it. But again, another construct that, that in some ways <laughs> constrains the, 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 the sort of direction and limitations of population health because two members or two visits per year doesn't sound unreasonable, but can I be honest? Yeah, I'm a primary care provider twice a year, uh, and so the construct is where we, there's going to be certain subsets of our population that don't see the need to do that, and then, then there are going to be others that maybe need more. So on balance, it's supposed to come out, but that's not necessarily the case, and she'll share more about some of the challenges that, that lies within me. And this is um, pediatric and... Adult. And adult. And it's all directly through Alliance, not through CFMG for pediatrics. That is correct. It's small. I mean, we have a small okay. pediatric footprint. Okay. Um, uh, but, yeah, it's so it's with us. CFMG is all over children's. Well, and, and also, as Tendrain mentioned, the, the reduction in rates with the ACA changes, doesn't that mean that the managed, some of the managed care, Medi-Cal managed care lives are people who are unfamiliar with primary care and who basically are unfamiliar, especially um, newly covered lives like young men who are Medi-Cal eligible who are now receiving coverage may not ever see a primary care. Yeah, we, yeah our data shows that we have a number of people who are non-utilizing, right? I think that the ACA um, has been beneficial in a number of ways, but is very true that single adults, male or female, particularly those who are homeless, for whom uh, a significant uh, portion are now in Medi-Cal managed care, trying to connect with them, trying to um, educate them on how to use the delivery system, changing their health-seeking behaviors, that is a challenge and it takes time. It's a huge change uh, for that population and for the delivery system and how to connect with them. Yeah. And they're the ones that are more likely to overuse ER. No, not, not necessarily. I mean, um, I think it all depends. I mean, you know, the data has shown, you know, consistently that people who are insured overuse 
ERs more than people who are uninsured. Because yeah. people who are uninsured are fearful for speaking of balance billing <laughs> of sales. Right. So it, it really depends. So RHA, the initial health assessment, um, the goal was to really start to work with reaching our patients day one. From the minute when they are known to us on the file we receive from the health plan, outreaching them, say, hey, you hit the lottery. We understand you're with the Alliance and now you're with us and we'd like to schedule um, the first visit with you, um, we would like you to come in, we want to get to know you, etc. So we have developed these individual um, letters that go out to each of our new members. This one just happens to be for Newark, but we have one for Hayward, um, we'll be obviously developing one for Highland, and we have one for Eastmont. And the letter essentially says, welcome to, to us, you know, call us um, to schedule our first appointment, but we don't rely on them calling us solely. We also call them. We have a call center where we have staff that have been making calls to individuals, right? Um, on top of the letters that are being mailed. And so the next slide gives you a sense of what our take-up rate has been um, with that. And we have also shared this information with the Alliance so that we can partner on trying to identify what works best for our population and what's worked uh, with their other providers, <coughs> delivery systems. So the first thing I'll say before going through the data is that our ability to use contact information is based on the contact information being correct. If the contact information is incorrect, we've got uh, a few challenges. And we know that historically, some of the data that the state has on the files that go to the health plans, and the health plans in turn send them to us, is incorrect. This is a very mobile population. Even if they're not homeless, they're a mobile population, right? And so the address that someone might have given when they applied for Medi-Cal might be very different from the address that the health plan gives us two months later. The telephone numbers are generally not always correct because people might use, you know, pay for, what are those pay for, pay for pay forms? Prepaid. Prepaid. I knew that. Prepaid. Exactly. <laughs> I did not know The Jason Bourne phone. Oh, I haven't seen those movies. I'll have to do that. Yeah, you throw away. You haven't seen them? Oh. I know. I'm, I'm pathetic. I know. Um, texting. Even if we had a cell phone number, and it's not clear that the numbers that we have on the files we receive are cell phone numbers, there are federal laws that prohibit texting. Individuals have to sign up for texting. You can't just text them. Emails are not on the Medi-Cal application. We don't have email um, addresses. Um, we've already mentioned this to Mark, uh, Amy, and he's already reached out to some of his colleagues to figure out as we move towards Epic, is there some way where we can start to collect this information either in the patient portal or other, other places so that we can start identifying other ways of contacting individuals. So let me give you a sense of sort of the results to date from 
letters that we mailed in December and January. And um, we mailed them in December and January because we, we got our first um, clean list of, of HIA uh, individuals from the Alliance in November. You can see we mailed over a, a thousand letters. We made over a thousand calls. And can I say um, that this is very time consuming, making all these calls. These are not robocalls. This is someone calling someone on the phone, leaving a message. And these calls, the call center does these calls in addition to calling for our existing patient population. You know, so this has to pay out uh, and be um, efficient for us, for us to maintain doing this long term. Yeah, question. Um, is this population a population that the Alameda County Public Health Department is also trying to reach out to? And are you aware when there's overlap? So um, the overlap between the Alameda, Alameda Alliance and HICSA, the Healthcare Services Agency, would be on the whole person care population. How many are those? Whole person care is part of the waiver, and it's for those individuals. How many are in there? Oh, go oh gosh. The current number. The current number is low. It's low. Yeah, the subset is, is, is the number of medical, or the group of medical patients where how you, high cost, right. how utilizes our multiple systems, and yeah. we've had a, it's a, it's been a, uh, a steep curve to get people enrolled in the program. Okay. So, but it's so still it's, it's still on the clinical site to reach out to those patients. It wouldn't be a Correct, because health services, they're not providing the services to them. They're providing a okay. care management platform. And, and I'm asking that question just in a precursor of other conversations that we've uh, sort of hinted at. How much coordination is there between the public health department and us in doing some of these things and if you could sort of highlight those as you sure. go through this this is really good and if there's opportunities maybe that's something else that has to be part of discussions with the county sure. so let me go through this slide and then i'll go yeah, yeah. specifically to have so uh, because of the restrictions on Ross, could you speak into your mic yeah please? because of the restrictions on texting not having availability uh, generally of email addresses, does this mean that you don't use them, that you really rely on calls and letters exclusively? So we've just started this, right? So um, in many ways, this is sort of our first venture into doing this. Mm -hmm. And so it is a learning uh, opportunity for us. And so we will see how this works. And if there are changes that need to be done, um, we'll make those changes. I mean. The texting, you know, unfortunately, uh, unless we're able to get a change in federal law or um, at the time someone opens up uh, their portal, their patient portal, we have a question that says, you know, give us your cell phone number and will you allow us to text you, which is what we want, then we'll be able to, to do that, that piece uh, along with the emails. But we're just looking at this is our first entree in making changes to our outreach strategies as we learn from what's successful and so, what's not successful. So you're not using it now, but it's something you would consider in the future. Yes. Yeah, it's something absolutely. we're exploring yeah. in conjunction with our transition to EPIC. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. 
So um, the call center, so you can see the percentage of completed calls, those that are uh, pending, um, they're uh, just shy of 80%. But really, it's the set of columns to the right. Really, what are the results of those completed calls? Um, unable to reach 36% of them, right? We made uh, first calls and first attempts, you know, on 59% of them. Uh, and more importantly, the total number of appointments scheduled. Now, appointments can be scheduled uh, now and then their actual appointment in the future, so we don't actually have how many of the individuals kept their appointments yet. But you can see that only 5%, I mean, that is not a return on investment when we think of the staff costs that were incurred developing the letters, mailing the letters, making the phone calls, and et cetera. So we've actually asked the Alliance, and we share this data with them, what do your other delivery system partners do? Maybe we can learn from them. Is there something about the population that we have that differs greatly from the members at your other you know, delivery system. So we know that we get disproportionately more people who are defaulted to us. A default means when it happens when someone in Medi-Cal managed care uh, gets coverage, they're told to select a health plan, they're told to select the provider. They may not select their health plan, they may not select their provider, and then they're defaulted. Individuals who are defaulted don't have the same level of engagement as someone who selects, yep. right? So is it that there's something about our patient population which is different? Is it that we're getting a, a number of uh, MCEs? MCEs are Medi-Cal expansion, those individuals who got coverage as a result of the ACA, disproportionately uh, single, you know, not interested in health care at this particular time. So there are a number of things that we have to figure out um, about the patient population um, um, to determine whether or not we'll keep with this approach moving forward. Yeah, so one, one thing I think that differs with Alameda Health System versus the other, um, you know, alliance uh, members is that we have the safety net emergency department, right? Yeah. And so one thing I'm just curious about is whether you all have looked at changing some practices in the ER. What we've, what we've seen just anecdotally is that, especially since the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, that um, when individuals visit the emergency department here, they are, um, often their PCP is switched to here. And I just wonder if that's a practice that we want to continue because now, especially now that we're really looking at, okay, once we say we're the PCP, there's more attached to this than just we get paid for that one visit, which we're gonna get paid for anyway. Um, and so is that a practice that we would want to continue? Because we see that a lot, um, and particularly because we um, deliver, Roots deliver street medicine. I'm sorry, I'm switching my wheeze. I'm going to Roots deliver street medicine for the homeless population of Oakland, and we see oftentimes that when a patient comes to the emergency room, they're changed in, the, in Alameda Alliance to having their PCP be Alameda Health System, which means now you're assuming that responsibility of having to reach that person again who's living in the encampments. Um, so just curious if there's thought about maybe being a little more intentional at the level of the emergency department. I know in the same day clinic you, you have to, I mean this is my understanding, is that the patient has to switch 
to AHS being the PCP if they come to same-day clinic. But that's another area where a lot of people come just to use it that day and don't continue in primary care with Alameda Health System. Mm -hmm. So there may be, you know, a group of folks that we're signing up um, to be our patients that we really can't reach and, you know, and, and that we're now assuming a type of risk for them. Right. So, um, the process for changing a medical home um, is that, you know, an individual will call the health plan, right? Uh, we can't change the medical home. The individual has the call to change the medical home, and they can change it at any time um, during the month. They'll make those, those changes. I have not heard um, that um, to go to uh, uh, same-day clinic for a first visit, uh, under Medi-Cal managed care that one needs to, to change their medical home. I, I will verify that. Mm -hmm. I do know that we have sent information out regarding Health Pack and the use of same-day clinic um, by Health Pack patients who may have a non-AHS member uh, um, medical home that for Health Pack um, we tell those Health Pack members you know, you can't use same-day clinic as a medical home if you're in Health Pack and you really want to come to Highland and you really want to come to K6, then you need to go with the county and change that medical home. So we've done that for Health Pack. I had not known that we had done that for Medi-Cal Managed Care, but I'll check on that. And in terms of the, the ED, um, I had not heard about that practice, but I will verify that and I will certainly give that to you. So, so if I could follow up, it, just to use this as an academic, if we're not a, let's figure problems out, because I would think this is a place to do that, but does that have a negative impact on the medical on the services you're providing on the street, your organization? So we, we are, well, so it's actually, there's a different answer now that HS is capitated. So before, we could actually bill for the service and be paid because AHS had not already been paid. But let's say, for instance, we saw someone um, on the street who had a medical home assignment of one of the FQHCs or another capitated provider, um, then we wouldn't be able to be paid for the visit. Right. So it is a little bit of a challenge in terms of um, sort of sustainability and things like that. Right. So I, I want to say something you probably didn't feel comfortable saying because this is an area, and it will come up later as well. I questions on the other end as someone has some experience with the support housing piece of this, and we have a lot of systems, we already alluded to this, a lot of systems outside of the Alameda Health System that we need to do connection with, mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so, if we're talking about homeless people and outreach, uh, my knowledge base tells me that you need to have direct experience on the street with people in order to have a relationship, and if we're uh, disincentivizing the provider who has that relationship to continue to work with those individuals, then it can be counterproductive to what we're trying to do here. Is that a reasonable summary of? I, if I could jump in, I, I think it is. Actually, I would, I would uh, echo your sentiment. I, I think part of the challenge for us now that we've moved in this direction, which is is a direction that's that's one 
uh, as Tim Green outlined before, uh, uh, articulated by the, the, the waiver, so we're all expected to move in this way, and it's a direction that is not dissimilar from where a lot of our partners in the safety net who have moved along this uh, trajectory have already been. So like San Francisco, Santa Clara, LA, even here in Alameda County with the uh, FQHCs, the uh, Community Health Center has been on capitation for quite a while. So, so th there's a challenge in that part of it, but now the population that we are now trying to manage uh, uh, is a population that hasn't been on that management trajectory. So the alliance, rightfully so, or understandably so, is expecting us to, to move in the direction of performance uh, along the same lines as their other directly contracted providers have been. So in some, many cases, a lot of the patients that we're talking about are not necessarily all new. There may have been patients that the alliance had all along, but they were doing a different level of, man let's say, uh, uh, care management for them. Meaning, if I may say, somewhere from minimal to none. So that it was such that, you know, there was care provided by like 40 different entities, which actually may have been quite effective care, but episodic and not something that you could you could look along the whole trajectory and say, here's what's going on with the person. So, so I think your point is right that as we do this and we can identify those individuals who are uh, marginally housed or homeless and have relationships with other entities, that we try to figure out where is the where is the balance of leveraging those partnerships and relationships they have and uh, and the accountability that's now being placed on us, uh, such that we're now in a position where ultimately the good of both ends can actually come together and not that it ends up falling apart from the sense that now we're held to some standard that obviously is challenging to reach and as Tanner said we're talking and saying you weren't able to do this before and you are actually a managed care entity. We're just stepping into this space and we're seeing what you saw before and we're trying to figure out if the requirement you placed on us is a reasonable expectation uh, such that we can figure out how we how we address this differently, which may mean that opens the space to say, do we need to be more creative about what's actually happening and then exploring whether that is actually working, and that should be some measure of, of sufficiency that's different than if you were talking about somebody who's further along. I think it's, it's, it's going to be a difficult or challenging journey. We're going to learn a lot in this process, and we're just you know, going to try to do our best to make sure nothing, nothing untoward happens while we go through yeah, this. I, mean, I think the What's happening in my head is that there's a person on the other side. Correct. Mm -hmm. That's right. And basically, when it comes to very vulnerable populations um, on the street, often their only connection is with an organization like Roots. Mm -hmm. um, and so we just we don't want to do harm. Yeah, exactly. So I'm looking at it from that perspective, as well as, you know, that we've also got to... I think you're right. I mean, I, works, right? I agree with you. And, and actually, it goes back to, uh, uh, in my mind, the question that Trustee Hernandez was asking earlier about, you know, we're talking about our, our outreach and what the public health department is. It's like multiple entities probably trying to do this. And, and there are limitations, and we, we are often talking about, even under the whole person care, you know, the county is creating a, uh, what they call a community health record, or it's a, for a small population, but actually including data in partnership with us that's for a broader swath of population. And and the notion is we can do better coordination when we know the different entities who have a 
care manager or an outreach person who's working with individuals so that we can actually try to connect and have linkages in a more real-time basis. Yeah. I think that right. th th there is an academic part of this. It's like, that makes sense. Uh, the practical part of it is like, well, how much can you actually do the rub? Yeah. Correct, the rub is there. Because even if, let's say, you know, under this uh, community health worker, you have Let's use sickly Louise again. Um, <laughs> who, who, who are five different agencies trying to reach out and coordinate care for him. And let's say now we know the public health department or um, I know uh, behavioral health is trying to reach out and get him into a visit. The fact that we know that we're reaching out to him is good to know, but it doesn't mean that now we can say, can we get him to come in for his IHA? Because that's the part we're responsible for. Like, they, they can't necessarily take that off for us. So, so, so we're building all this infrastructure for the what can be, and there's maybe going to be some return on it, but there's still these limitations to it. And to get back to the point, this person just might not be amenable to this construct. And we're, we're forcing a construct on uh, population because it makes sense on a macro level and on the individual micro level. Yeah. I, I think that's really a profound part of the equation. I'll never forget, this is from my graduate school work, a uh, professor of mine went to Cuba to study their health mm -hmm. system. I had to do some translations for the tapes that he brought back and I remember one of the questions said to a person uh, who was like the block captain. So they have a, they have a system like, mm -hmm. like what we have for neighborhood watch. And the block captain actually receives everybody's um, immunization records. And so they go hound you mm -hmm. if you haven't had your shots. Mm -hmm. And the woman said, wow, isn't that an invasion of privacy for you? And the response by the Cuban citizen was, oh no, it's my duty to stay healthy. Mm. Now, that mind shift comes with a lot of indoctrination about all sorts of things. I'm not going to go there. What, what I think we're up against is that um, there is not necessarily for all of the people that we most need to serve an appreciation of preventative care and on and on. The second part is the privacy issues. They, they mean well, but I think we're often at odds with the intent of what we're trying to do. And the last, though, which is truly my concern often, is about the silos of things that are going on. So, you know, I'm working with Asthma Start. Brenda Yamashita gets names from Alameda Alliance as well. And I can guarantee you that some of those names are in the whole person care, and some of them are in behavioral health. And, and no one necessarily can talk about all of that for any number of reasons. But, um, I, you know, when do we get a chance to say for anyone that the county touches and anyone that we touch, there's one thing that we're going to try to do in common? If we could get to that place and have agreement about that, maybe the door cracks open a little bit because it might be, can we just have an email address or do we get a cell phone? Can we give them a cell phone? That's the other thing that some organizations are doing, right? Yeah. So, you know. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, I mean, that's in an aspirational level, that is more, but we haven't done a community health needs assessment um, because we have HICSA or Alliance giving us information about our community, so we know that we get this and that from the data sets that we have. Mm -hmm. But part of like doing a CHNA is also that you're, you've got 
feet on the ground and you've got connections with the community and then you have like, so you're not just looking at the homeless and the very, very high utilizers, but the middle of the pyramid folks who are assigned to us but don't come to us and things. So is that something, I know we haven't done that in a few years, right? I'm not sure if we have done that. I mean, there are there is a statute, as you know, at the statewide level that requires um, hospitals to do community needs assessments once every three years and to develop community benefits plans. I think in this county, like many counties, the counties have uh, the hospitals have joined forces to do one community needs assessment and then develop their plans based on their particular geographic areas. In some ways. Um, the community health record slash social health information exchange that HICSA is envisioning is designed to address both of the issues you raised. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Trustee Banerjee, from the perspective of not just focusing on the high utilizers if the county had data on everyone in the delivery system, so, you know, Medi-Cal managed care, Medi-Cal fee-for-service, health pack, et cetera, they would be able to use that data mm -hmm to essentially identify broader needs irrespective of the delivery system that that person was aligned with, right? And so I think that that's part of that goal. And being able to do as you would, uh, suggested, um, uh, Trustee Hernandez. Promising to the ER, level two ECA, five minutes. Promising to the ER, level two ECA, five minutes use that data from all the various entities, both social services and health services, to say, okay, what's one common thing that we could all work on together? So I think that that's how they're envisioning some of the uses of the CHR. Yeah, a couple. So who's they? Oh, I'm sorry, HICSA. Uh, healthcare Services Administrative uh, yeah. Agency, Health Services. A couple, couple things. I mean, I think one thing to your point um, earlier about the, the whole primary care piece is like actually being disciplined about what we mean when we say somebody is our primary care patient, right? Mm -hmm. So for us working out in the in the encampments, it's really challenging because we, you know, our team actually has to sort of make a determination just just in terms of I don't want to say if it's ethical, if it's an ethical piece. I consider it an ethical piece because it also ties to our. Um, responsibilities with respect to not abandoning patients to making sure that we're you know we're accessible for them but here we are out in the street you know in a mobile medical vehicle so it's it's really challenging so what we had to do is say if this is really an urgent or episodic visit then there's really no reason to 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 you know it's like where do you currently get your care if they're not getting care anywhere and they want to become a patient then that's fine but that's usually not the time or place to have that conversation per se it might be a planting the seed kind of a thing um, and so there's a continuum there I think about having that conversation with a patient that um, that makes me you know question sort of the piece about whether a PCP assignment should even be contemplated in the ER or the or urgent care it may be perfectly appropriate at some times because if that person's not connected anywhere and you want them to get connected then you should try to do something but at the same time you know they're having an emergency or an urgent issue is it the best time for them to make a decision about where they can reasonably go to get their ongoing sort of continuity care so I, th I think I already said that but I just kind of wanted to drill down because it took us a while to sort of figure that part out. Like, are we are we trying to have this conversation at every type of visit, um, urgent, and you know those kind of things? Um, 
because oftentimes we, I mean, we're bringing people here, I mean, frankly, from the street sometimes to the emergency room if it's really um, something that's very urgent. So I think it, it's, it's complicated. Um, but one thing I think, to Tracy Hernandez's point that I think is interesting is about, so the silos that, that are created, I mean, really, Alameda Health System has the majority of the data about the safety net population. Between Alliance and AHS, I mean, so healthcare services is, is trying to get all of this information through these new, you know, the community health record and all that, which I think is great and it's the right way to go. But I also am feeling like this is an opportunity for us to really make some asks of the health plan mm -hmm. because the health plan knows who's on that asthma start list. Yes, they do. They know who's on the health homes list. They know who's on the AC3, you know, whole person care list. They know who's the assigned PCP. They, you know, I think, um, you know, wearing the other hat of being, <laughs> being a governor or governors there, one of the things I've sort of urged is to what extent are we gathering social determinants of health data as a plan? Because the plan should know if someone's housed or unhoused. Because that also, I mean, just from the pure standpoint of doing risk assessment or actuarial, any, any kind of predictive anything, right? They should know if the person's housed or unhoused. So I think this might be a good opportunity to think about, you know, what could the plan really provide in terms of data and, and aligning and sort of preventing some of these multiple outreaches or, or these silos. So we actually do get some of that data, but not, not all of it. So we, on a monthly basis, just for our members, we get a sense of who is um, health homes, who is whole person, uh, the health home pro project, whole person care. So we get that list, and that goes to our care management staff, and our care management staff participates in both of those programs in a way uh, so that we can better identify those individuals and get them into the appropriate, what's called, service bundle. Yeah. So we get that list. We also get um, a document, uh, I talk about later on in the presentation, um, essentially what they consider to be their high utilizers based on cost. Yeah. And so that gives us information on, um, across the system, the extent to which a person has used mental health services, that have been built to the Alliance and the Alliance is paid for. Um, it does have homelessness, but we found out in our last meeting that that is a, um, uh, not a field, yes. It's, well, it's not so much self-reported, it's not a field that we can rely on because it's based on coding and so it depends upon whether or not the provider has coded it or coded it. Appropriately. Since you can't get paid for it, it's not coded very much. Right, right, right. exactly. Um, so <laughs> we're getting, right, it's not like diabetes. Right. So I'm going to talk about a little bit later how we're trying to use in the interim before we go to Epic, use this particular um, file to give us a better sense of our patient population. Um, uh, on the social determinants, I think all of us would like to figure out how we can get more of that information. You know, one of the, I think, the reasons why we're particularly interested in the CHR um, is if social services in particular mm -hmm. is putting data. So social services agency, which will have information on people's income maintenance and their housing status and all of those kinds of things that we would be able to get that would actually help us, be it either in our discharge planning if someone's on the inpatient side, even on the outpatient side, really doing appropriate care management and patient navigation. So we're certainly interested in being a recipient of data and information just as we're putting in information so that we can provide a holistic approach to care delivery. Are we part of that pilot of the community health record now? 
We uh, well, we are um, in the midst of uh, I guess doing all the legal stuff to make sure that we can participate. What we told um, the health uh, HICSA is that we are interested in participating. We understand and see the value of it. We've outlined the populations for which we're going to share data. So the HPAC population, Medi-Cal managed care, and if we're able to, the fee-for-service Medi-Cal population. HICSA has provided us with the data that they would like, and we have provided them with information on the data sources that we have and are able um, to share. Uh, and so the last thing that we're focusing on is making sure that we've got the appropriate legal structures and BAAs in place. We did find out that we needed to revise our business associates agreement to be able to cover the provision of data for the populations that I just mentioned. So there's a negotiation. Oh yeah, yeah. And we had counsel on Mike's team along with uh, counsel from the county and the county's um, at outside council. So yeah. just to be clear, there, there was a prototype uh, that the county had before, uh, which is a much more limited sort of engagement, which was actually with um, 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 CMT. What's it called? CMT. CMT, Collective Medical Technologies, which is the same group that does the EDI, the Emergency Department. So we actually, and they did it through us. We actually um, leveraged our contract to allow them to quickly get onto this to begin to sort of build a, a, a prototype of what they were wanting to do. They've now uh, gotten that uh, clarified. They have a vendor who's going to provide the uh, services, uh, and then the pieces of kind of get moving to the, the final tool that they're putting in place is, uh, uh, as Tangerine described it. I wanted to just uh, challenge one thing that I don't know about, which is, uh, as Tangerine mentioned, uh, uh, we do get a lot of data from the plan now, and it's, that's gotten better over the past couple of months, so we've been working through this, and, and we are able to get the data of the things that they know about, which is largely the things that they coordinate and facilitate. I don't know how well and how uh, familiar they are with programs that are offered in the county. So if someone's in like a and asthma registry so they have so, so again so if it's something that they're connected with in some way then I guess they do have it but uh, if they're other the programs then they wouldn't necessarily then, have but then it, I don't yeah. think the public health department would ha be able to have that information necessarily about the patients right. I think Brenda gets is the referral if the child has been to the gotcha. emergency department but, uh, like for example the social services data I don't uh, I don't know how much of that the alliance no, the alliance doesn't get any of the social services data. Right. They get the asthma data and they yeah. get the um, immunization data yeah. because they're connected with the statewide immunization. And then under behavioral health for the um, the SMI population, do they, they don't have that either. No, so because they, so they, don't, they don't get it because they're not responsible uh, for providing so they do the mild to moderate, but they don't do the severely mentally ill. So Brenda is also now in a diabetes outreach prevention or pre-diabetes outreach prevention program. So they might be collecting yet another population for her mm -hmm. to contact through her team. Mm -hmm. But um, I agree. It's There's more that could be done there. There's more information that could be shared. Um, and I think it is about... I said to Kimmy um, the other day, we all need to get in the Coliseum, doors locked, mm -hmm. can't come out until you agree on who's uh, going to talk to who and how we're going to share this. Yeah. I'll go a step further, and this is a statement from one trustee. I, I think we need to be a leader 
in community health care. And, um, you know, so we shouldn't be driven by our uh, legal counsel only in this process. Sure. So we're not. I want to be clear. We're not, and actually, we are being the leaders. I, and I appreciate that you said that because I... I don't know. I'm not saying you're not. No, no, no. But I want to take the opportunity to say I, 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 I often... Uh, I have a certain level of latitude, I believe, in the role, and I try to make sure that I'm reflecting the will of the board as the, as the uh, trustees of the organization. And so uh, one of the things that we are doing, which is uh, something that's somewhat controversial in the, uh, from the perspective of other uh, um, uh, uh, providers in our space that are, that are uh, caring for similar populations, is we have agreed to share a lot more data about a wider swath of the population than is what, what is the natural uh, parameters of the whole person care program because we agree with the, our county partners that there is uh, there is at least the the, the concept of value that we can all uh, uh, bring to the population we're trying to serve uh, uh, in a different way if we have as robust sharing of data as possible with though the appropriate protections. And that is the piece where we're saying, okay, we'll, we'll do this, but this is because you're now entering into a space that you don't have a lot of expertise in either. And as you all know, and this is part of your fiduciary responsibility, uh, um, um, data integrity and data security is, is a growing field of, of risk in uh, healthcare, uh, for which we have to be concerned about just exclusively as a provider, mm -hmm. but certainly when we're transmitting data to someone else, mm -hmm. for which we need to make sure you have the right protections in place as well, and or properly indemnify us in the event that the breach happens with sure. you and, uh, and yeah. the penalty is still too low. So we're not driven by it, but we are doing yeah, it, I, everything I, is appropriate to Just to add safe. to it, I mean, where I'm coming from on this is someone who uh, provides services to my, with my other hat on, mm -hmm. vulnerable populations in five counties, and this is our home county, but this is the most disorganized, ill-focused <laughs> county of the five that we work in. Wow. And it has a burgeoning, massive homeless problem, and we're in the tip of the iceberg, mm. folks. Yeah, it's just so going to get worse, mm -hmm. um, be partially because we're not organized. Yeah. Yeah. I hear your point. Yeah. So we yeah. be a leader yeah. in trying to coordinate services for vulnerable, yeah. displaced populations in our community. Yeah. And I'm going to, I, I want to echo that. And, and I want to say that because some of this is so out of our purview around the structural issues that exist yeah. in this county that have led to the situation that you're talking about. Yes. And what gives me pause, because I agree with you, we should be a leader at the same time it, with the construct that's being formed, we're not, we are not in control of it. Sure. We don't have the governance, governance, like, you know, I mean, leadership really. We don't have control about what other providers end up in the mix so that yet we probably are involved with the lives and will be the point of entry for the vast majority of people in this community health record. So the part that gives the place people, where the failures become more pronounced. Well, and that's what, where I was going with it, is that it will also be where the finger gets pointed because just because, you know, we're holding the, first of all, the, the health information, first of all. So while you'll have other types of organizations accessing this information, we're the one making available for PHI, right? Right. And the we can do we can't be fully indemnified no matter what because right. we're the ones that have the PHI and if it got loose we're still we're, we're still on the hook regardless of what all we put in the contracts and so I you know I don't know or need to know all the how brutal the negotiation might be or what all is going on in there but I do want us to be um, 
just very mindful mm -hmm. of this. I mean, we are the ones that probably have the most to lose, I would say. Um, and it's not an either or, though. Right? It's not an either or. And in fact, I, you know, in, in, I mean, there's no question that this is the way healthcare needs to go. It has for far too long been just so antiquated. I mean, and that and to the point that it's causing people to die. So I mean, this is something that's urgent. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't know. You know, you all will know more about how to best balance that. But I, I do think we need to do an extreme amount of due diligence, and then and and also be very supportive and be a leader in the at least in the notion that philosophically this is the way we have to go. So yeah. we have to do whatever we have to do to get there. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 again, I really appreciate the sentiments. I think um, 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 the team could uh, corroborate this, that the approach that, you know, or the philosophy you're espousing is exactly the philosophy we have taken into this. The only, uh, initially, uh, the, the, so just to give you a flavor of kind of the, uh, uh, the trajectory we've been on, initially the, the request for us was, can you just share all the data about everybody who comes into your system? And we went time off by on the plane. I mean, there, there are people who are, we're a trauma center, and we care for a lot of our employees. There are people who, if you look at the range or sort of the socioeconomic scale, are probably never going to be the people who need this level of coordination. And sharing that amount of information so freely, uh, which involves a fair amount of disclosure, uh, is probably not useful or beneficial. Let's zero in on kind of the population and maybe one or two degrees outside of that, which is significantly large enough that we have covered probably 85 to 90 plus percent of the people we're talking about here in a very uh, evolved, uh, fashion. So that's why we said anybody who's connected to Medi-Cal in any sort of way, anybody who's uninsured at all, this is the this is the population we're talking about. We're not just talking about high utilized or high cost people, which is a small, and the people who are in the alliance. We went and worked with the other plan, Anthem, and said, can we share your data too? Because you know the, the populations look similar in some respects. So, so we try to espouse, I believe, the, the exact philosophy you're, you're, you're talking about here in our approach, uh, and I believe we are, uh, we, we're really close to getting there. And this is, uh, again, I want to point out, different than some other uh, participants. Uh, I can't go further uh, to say than that, but let's just say across the broad you might be surprised that they're, that they're experiencing challenges across the board with uh, this level of uh, engagement, and I hope that they would echo that irrespective of kind of a, a few back and forths we've had that by and large, except the fact that the timeliness of this, they're a little bit urgent and we're trying to get there. Uh, it has been a collaborative, collegial uh, approach that is has still the potential to do the exact type of thing you're talking about. Here. Yeah, it's a little sticky for me. I'm sorry. This is the one part that's sticky for me, and, and I ran up against this in multiple other settings, but, mm -hmm. but is that folks who are accessing services within the safety net, I mean, the way that HIPAA and everything else is structured affords them the same rights as someone with, you know, Kaiser or mm -hmm. Blue Cross, right? So if we create strata that says there can be more collaboration and coordination if you're poor, i.e. I. less privacy restrictions than if than if you have you know some type of full scope other coverage um, you know I don't think that's what we intend so I think it's just it's it's tricky because this is safety net these are public dollars we do need to be responsible and we do need to coordinate and we do need to be looking out for the best interests of the greater good um, but I do think um, it's just a cautionary note that's beyond this room probably about just making sure that we're saying that um, everybody has the same sort of right to um, privacy and continuity than, than everyone I agree. Else. I mean, that actually ended up pushing us in the opposite direction in terms of the challenge. And again, it is why some uh, players have said, 
you, I only want to provide to you the data for the population for which you're actually you, you have designed to target for this program. And you only get that data once they sign up for the program. I'm talking about rates, right? So, so there's this notion of like, I will only share this when, when the person positively elects to give you the information. We have stretched that to the other part of this conversation we're talking about to say, okay, we will, we will give you the ability to scan this population without directly accessing it, but you have that once you, so now you can do outreach to people who might be eligible for these services and actually can benefit from them uh, once you identify sort of positively that they're capable uh, or eligible for it, and then they can elect and the floodgate opens. But we're giving you that ability so that you don't otherwise have to even know who's out there. Right. But we're trying to balance that against, like, now you, you have everybody, and if you do this, I, I just said you, you do run the risk of, uh, uh, there are, I think there are two things to consider. There's gradations of, of sophistication around this where somebody uh, uh, could find out after the fact that you share data with some entity for which they have no connection or engagement, don't ever plan to, and they wonder, who gave you the right? Yes. Right? Uh, uh, and then there's the other side of this, which is the beneficial side, where somebody says, Thank you. I really wanted all of you to kind of coordinate it better together, and I thought that's what I was doing, but it wasn't working. So now, so that 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 piece now happens. So we're trying to strike that that balance, which is a tough one to strike, uh, because I could say, okay, well, if I'm going to share this data, then I shouldn't do it just for this group. I should do it for everybody. Okay. But now I'm worried about risk and exposure for the organization, and quite honestly, the benefit of the program, because now you have everybody's data. Can you really stratify? Like, how, how are you going to zero in? and try to really leverage your resources for people who can most benefit when you're so busy building with the broader population or confounded with all this data that is, you know, let's say 20% of it is of no meaningful value to you. So, so it's a good question. Yeah, let me, let me just, so, and then I'm, 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 I'm going to stop. Yeah, I'm going to stop. Um, I, I would just like to propose, it's not a formal proposal, but to, to really wrestle with this, in my humble opinion, does take a large convening of all of the key players. And I don't think that convening necessarily happens quietly behind the scenes. I think it's something far more engaging of, of really us, the stakeholders, the leadership involved, the board of trustees, the board of supervisors to say, there really does need to be a meeting of the minds about sharing this information in a way that's appropriate, respectful, uh, cognizant of limitations and so on. But if we don't do that, we will continue to have this conversation. It will continue to be messy to get work done with this population that we know might be, it might be the 1% of, you know, Alameda County that we really need to figure it out, right? Um, I, I just want to plant that seed. I, mm -hmm. I talked to Kimmy informally mm -hmm. about that, and I was joking, lock us up in the Coliseum, can't come out until you, you know, figure it out. But we may need that. So I, I also... It's just a point of, of who, who's, who has the ability and the accountability to do that. We could, we could, we could press the matter, but it's not, it's not uh, we're, a, we're a better participant. I, I understand that. But without but you, we could be a leader. That's a leader. That's a leader. Yeah, that's what we But I want to hear the so that I can figure out what, if, if there's something we're not doing that we could, because I could, I would actually, if I, I'll, I'll just say, if we try to suggest this, I think we'd run up against the people who, our colleagues who are trying to make this work, right. being really frustrated. So let me give you a vision of, of how this, so we had this issue, I'm going to say in the public record, mm -hmm. of not having successful joint meetings with the Board of Supervisors. Mm -hmm. We've had several meetings that, uh, 
I feel, not the one I, I think I have colleagues who feel the same way, that they're not successful uh, meetings. Uh, we have very serious issues yes. that we need to be talking to each other about. Yes. This would be an example yes. of one of those. Yes. So I, I uh, the board president and myself have a meeting uh, with uh, Supervisor Wilma Chan mm -hmm. in a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. This would be one of our primary examples of what we could do with a joint meeting. And I don't mind saying for the record, this is, I suggested this as a topic for a meeting. Yeah. Well, let's put more public pressure on the powers that be to do that. This is a public meeting. We're talking about this in a public way. We want to take this idea to the next step. Let's see what we can do because I, I'm with Luis. This is, this is a moment of leadership. It's yeah. a moment of real... Um, uh, you know, intentional, uh, maybe aggravation and intentional disruption, but it's a good thing. It's yeah. the right thing. It's a healthy thing to yeah. discuss. Right. I, 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 I agree. No, that's great. And okay. That was really good. No, no, no. Thank you for those questions. I, I'm in the interest of time. I don't think I need to go through this slide. This is sort of our accomplishment and the things that we'll continue to focus on. Um, one of the things we will be uh, discussing um, after we migrate uh, to primary care, which is really, are we done with value-based purchasing? Mm. You know, should we consider moving perhaps some of our other services into a capitated model? Uh, recognizing that there will be always be some services that are uh, compensated and fee for service and some capitated. What's the ideal mix and ratio of them? So specialty care capitation is what you uh, imagine. It's capitating specialty services and ancillary services um, and putting it in a risk-based arrangement. We are not um, FQHC for our specialty care, so this would be uh, risk-based. We would do it because of the very things that we've been talking about today and in past meetings, the ability to better coordinate care by having more of the services provided by this delivery system, what happens today with specialty care, and you've seen the data, we have a significant number of individuals who go outside the delivery system for those services because they have the right to do that because we are reimbursed on a fee-for-service basis. There are a number of things for us to consider going to specialty cap. One is that the range of specialty services that, uh, that people are eligible for under Medi-Cal managed care is far broader than the scope of services that we provide at this facility, mm -hmm. right? Or that we provide at this facility mm -hmm. plus, you know, San Leandro and Alameda combined. What's, what's an example of what we yeah. don't do that maybe they would need? Right. Transplants. Bariatric <laughs> 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 surgery. <laughs> Some high-end uh, ancillary services. Mm -hmm. okay. There are a range of things that we don't provide. Dialysis, um, dialysis, outpatient dialysis. In-stage renal disease services. So I have a question. Yeah. This might be a backdoor suggestion. I'm not sure. But it, have we thought about adding any of our specialty services to our FQHC scope? So, 
That's a, that's uh, so complicated. I'm sorry. It's not complicated. Um, apparently, it's deep this organization um, billed for a range of specialty services under FQHD without putting them appropriately Oops. under the FQHD scope of services. Yeah. Oops. 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 Yeah. And we are still untangling that today. I believe we have a reserve in our... Yes. Balance sheet. Yes. So, uh, is it possible? Yes. Would I think the federal administration or the state be willing to entertain that, given the history of the organization to date, to be determined? Mm -hmm. We would establish that we could bill for it. That's <laughs> true. This is true. This is true. This is true. Um, well, I have to, <laughs> in defense, it wasn't like, it wasn't like fraud, it was just that where you had the FQHC and the co-location of some of those things, so you just felt like that was how it is, we got dinged by HRSA, mm -hmm. but it was like where things are co-located and you know that this guy, had this stream has the FQHC, but this doesn't, but, so I think those it were... Fraud, it was incompetence. It came down to this, uh, the, the very specific address and floor that was listed on the application for what services went under appropriately under the scope. Uh, the, the rate change is based off of what you say there, but, but if we said, you know, we're providing orthopedic services and they said, well, your application says your services are provided at this building on the fifth floor. Where's your orthopedic clinic? On the sixth floor? It shouldn't be in there. Now you owe us because we paid you all this stuff. So, and, and, and then we have to go back to, well, you know, back in 97 when we applied for it, it was on that floor, but then we moved it. And like, ah, you should have moved it. Now you have to, so you get into these really technical debates around what was intended versus what actually happened versus what should have happened. And I don't know our, our FQ rate or what we what, what our build rates and the different specialties are, but it might have not even been financially more beneficial for us to bill it as FQ anyway. Potentially. Potentially. And that's also, yeah. So, but I think, it, I guess the location is one thing, but I think the other part is the actual scope of services. And if you have a scope of service um, change, I mean, it could result in a higher FQ rate across the board for even our primary care visits. Mm -hmm. Um, which is why I was part of why I was asking, and then also thinking that maybe that was a way to get to a more comprehensive value-based model than trying to go capitated in our specialty where we don't have a complete complement of, of the specialty care they want. Right. Yeah. I, I think that the, the um, challenge will still be the range of, of services because, as you can imagine, from a health plan's perspective, right, you're not going to provide every specialty in a particular wellness center. And so then they have to have a system in place on their end because that distinguishes which specialties are within the cap, which ones aren't, and then explaining to the members, oh, you can get this specialty here, but you go somewhere else for this specialty. It just becomes much more confusing mm -hmm. from a both administrative and a communication perspective for everyone concerned. So I, I do think that the you're, you're absolutely right trying to figure out what services we can get, specialty services we can get into uh, FQHC is appropriate, but when you don't provide the full range of services, you're still left with that fundamental sort of concern around how to structure it. Yeah. Meaning because, each, because a specialty might not be at every site. Might not be at every it. site. Got it. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so there's that piece. 
Um, uh, I think most of you have heard of what's called the Division of Financial Responsibility, a DOFR. A DOFR is essentially something that's attached to a contract that essentially outlines the range of services that are provided and what who's responsible for payment of those services, if it's the health plan, if it's the hospital, if it's the physician component, or if it's, if it's carved out. So we would have to develop that. And with actually um, the range of services, we would have to determine um, for the, any service we don't provide directly, contracting out for that service, right? And when you're contracting out for service, you have to be in a good negotiating position, which merely will be based on volume. And the issue is whether or not we, as a delivery system, could negotiate a rate similar to what, say, the health plan could negotiate for when they're negotiating for hundreds of thousands of lives. And we know today um, that we have about 48,000 alliance members, right? And so our negotiating position is going to be very different from, you know, either the health plans that's doing it for hundreds of thousands of people. So really just trying to figure out um, from a provider uh, contracting perspective, you know, what we'd be contracting for versus building ourselves and um, what rates we would offer. And we would have to offer fee-for-service rates um, I, I think you may know, um, if you are not uh, capitated, or even if you are capitated, if you're not a health plan, either a restricted or a full health plan, you can't capitate another provider. You have to offer fee-for-service rates. So we would have to be offering fee-for-service rates for these services, even though we might be capitated for them. Is that, is that clear? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then there's the entire infrastructure, you know, you know, one of claims adjudication for services that you are not providing directly. The entire medical management, are you getting the quality services that you want? Are you looking at the utilization? So there's a huge infrastructure. It really is essentially a management services organization that you would be creating um, for, the, for the organization. So a good example would be um, we uh, know that there is the Alameda Health Consortium, which is you know the community-based clinics, but they also have an MSO. Their MSO is CHCN. The Community Healthcare Network is their MSO for their clinics. And so it's that kind of infrastructure that you would need. And so then the issue is really, is that a build versus a buy decision? Does it make sense to build all that versus purchasing it from a third party, if you were to do it, if you could determine that from a financial perspective, it made sense. And it's a service is pretty <laughs> readily available for everybody? Yeah, well, MSO functions are readily available. Um, you know, generally the organizations that have a clinical component because you have to have a physician, you have to have nurses, you have to have UN, you have to have eligibility. I mean, there's a, a range of things that go into that, but there are organizations that do that. Um, uh, we will be looking at um, the feasibility of this, right? Uh, and obviously any decisions would first, you know, come back to the Board of Trustees to make sure, does this make sense for us? Is there one area that you're really tempted to do in terms of specialty care? I mean, what would your magic wand, you know, wave to say to, to do the most for the patients that we need to serve and, and be, you know? Yeah, well, one of the things we'll look at in this is specialty care capitation versus a bundled payment yeah. for something. Like, is there something that we do really, really well? 
from primary care to all the specialties to the inpatient that we should take full risk for. So I gave an example earlier with our colleagues in um, Santa Cruz and Cibadad, they've done bariatric surgery. So they are at risk for bariatric surgery from you know, the time someone is diagnosed to yeah, and so maybe that's a way of approaching it, where we're very clear that we provide all components of the health care. Wow. So I think there are a number of ways um, that we could approach it. Yeah. So is this purely an AHS decision, or is there some external sort of pressure to move towards, towards this um, beyond just primary care? So there's no um, external pressure except for, you know, the first bullet is what we're trying to address. Really, we're trying to address reducing our out-of-network utilization on the specialty side because the data is really clear. We, uh, there's a lot of funding that does not come to the system because individuals are able to go to specialty providers that are part of the networks for the health plans, right? So if we became capitated, then basically it wouldn't be authorized for them to go outside. Right, they, the okay. authorization we would provide, exactly. Yes. Very, very similar to primary care. And so really that, that's a real driver. And if we're trying to do population health, you know, the more of the healthcare experience we have, the better we are in uh, our ability to move the needle in terms of quality and cost. Helping the patient navigate the landscape, yeah. uh, all those sorts of things. Leveraging the investments in the capabilities of an EHR, all those sorts of things. Right. So if I could, uh, Hello, everybody. Hello. Hi. Hello. So, 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 the, the conversation around our, 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 our frequent utilizers and uh, the homeless, and I understand a pipeline task force or working group is going to be created. But I'd love to be part of that with the county around housing those folks. And oh, there's a, there's a whole, well, there's a whole person care committee that already exists that we have been a member of from the beginning. There's a governance committee for the CHCR, the community health record that we're going to be participating in. I'll catch up with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but a question around this, so like, as I was reading over this uh, the other night, it, I'm, I'm trying to really understand from a non-hospital you know, administrator expert, um, if I were to compare this to Kaiser, so what we've done, Kaiser, like, they cover everything for the person. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yep. We, we are now covering everything for our primary care folks. It's not, it doesn't make sense to try to do it for specialty because of the out of network, right? But right now, if we have someone who's on, you know, who we, we have their life for primary care, if they were out of network, is it a, is it a really a loss to us or just not a gain that we're, is it, is it a financial hit or is it just that we're not overseeing their care? So it's, it's a lost revenue opportunity. Opportunity, right. 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 But more importantly, it's the first bullet. Right, the coordination of care. Coordination of care. Right. Exactly. But we're not losing funding because they're going out of network. No. We're just failing to take opportunity of that. Right. And so I guess the real question is, do you pull the trigger and try to cover their whole care? And that's, that's, yeah. That's, that's, just a, that's the discussion. That's, and the infrastructure needed to still, right. to authorize or not, whether they can go out of network and all that. Yeah, because it's still moving from the It sounds like it's all law order. Is there a universe where we do primary care, inpatient, and ER not specialty? Or it's either everything or primary care and specialty? No, we make the decision, yeah. I okay. think. I mean, if we're we're with the plan. Right, but based on the fact that we don't have to actually even propose this. Right, right. right. 
So we do know that we needed to have a risk-based APM. We have met that requirement. Right? Mm -hmm. We're going beyond the requirement mm -hmm. to say, look, if we really want to do population health well, we really are trying to get more of the healthcare experience. And the next venture to that, beyond primary care, is specialty care. And the real issue is we don't provide, from my perspective, the real issue is we don't provide a lot of the services that people are eligible for. And so we would have to be contracting out for a range of services. But can you tell what services do we provide that are like high utilization, like can, and can we carve that out? Like what specialty care services do we provide? Can, can I have a question about emergency care? Like we're the emergency right. room, right? Yes. Um, so, and can we just take those pieces? Yeah. So I, I think the challenge from a health plan perspective, if I have a health plan, that would not be attractive to me. Got it. I, I do not want a health care provider where I am carving out orthopedics or cardiology and that's capitated, everything else is fee for service and I got to explain to my people, my members, oh, when it's, you know, endocrine, you can go to any provider you want to, but when it's cardiology, you have to stay with AHS. That's confusing for the patients and it's also difficult from an administrative point of view to implement the systems to do the billing, the coding, all of those kinds of things. Generally, as I was saying, I think maybe before you arrived, you could try to do what's called a bundled payment for a particular set of services. So if you want to do the example I used was bariatric surgery. So you're doing everything for bariatric mm -hmm. surgery and you're at risk because you do that really well. And you could do it that way. That's a way of doing it. So we would have to figure out what are those sort of groups of services that we might want to propose that sort of part of you know, everything, you know, or if we did transplants, and we said, we're going to take over all liver transplants, that's something I suspect a health plan would be interested in, yeah. right? And it would be like under a different yeah. construct. So for example, you know, she talked about when we had to create our APM, we had things we had to uh, uh, design to do this, and one of them was the population. So in this case, we said, only the people who are assigned to us uh, uh, do we want to be responsible for. Uh, capitation, but if we did like a bundle payment arrangement, or if we wanted to do specialty cap with a plan on certain services, that part could be changed. Like right now, our motivation is population health, so we're really just trying to. Uh, uh, the primary driver is the patient population who's elected to get their primary care with us because we feel we can coordinate you know, their services and uh, uh, care better. Uh, but if we didn't uh, take this approach and we said, oh, we just want to do bundle payment on bariatrics, for example, because we are either the top or only provider countywide, then our universe actually may be, we'll take all of your, anybody who's in your plan who needs bariatric surgery, you can now say that we're your exclusive provider of bariatric surgery. So it doesn't matter if the primary care medical home is me, or CHCN, or Kaiser, or Children, or anybody, okay. you can say to everybody, I've carved out this particular service and I'm only paying for it from this particular provider. So that's a different universe or population, and it's a different suite of services that we're talking right. about. Right. In this case, we didn't take that approach because we really wanted to population health-wise. We didn't do that because all we're doing is kind of contributing to some fragmentation, maybe something you can manage, but it's right. fragmented. Yeah. In are this we, case, we try to do something that was Are we receiving bundled payment for any Medicare beneficiaries? No, we Medicare, no. 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 
We don't have enough yeah. population to So there's no, because I thought that Medicare was paying a final payment for certain procedures. The, oh, yeah. So you're talking about like the things like um, um, yeah, 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 uh, TDR and the, uh, right. uh, they, they started rolling out pilots for that type of thing, um, and then when the administration changed, they backed off of it. Okay. Uh, and it was optional in certain markets, but we were one of the markets that was mandatory to do it, and then they backed off of it, and now it's okay. optional. So I just have a couple of clarifying questions. One, I'm just curious, is our dental an FQHC? Dental, no, so dental is... Um, not an FQHC. So in this in this county, dental uh, people can get dental through still fee for service um, for managed care. There's only two dental plans in the state of California, and that's in Sacramento and San Diego or in Los Angeles. So people just do. But I know a lot of the FQHCs have it within scope. Yeah, we have it as a service, um, but when we bill for, we're not billing dental capital. We're not billing uh, the health plan. Not, and we're not getting our FQ rate for no. dental. Okay. And some question is, um, for the specialty capitation, is that only relevant to patients who were also providing their patient their primary care? Yes, yeah, so it would be a, for assigned members. Only yeah. for assigned members. That's the approach that we're looking for. For the capitation piece. For the capitation. Because yeah, we wouldn't provide those services. Right. But those would be fee-for-service. But those would be fee-for-service. So it would only be capitated for the people that were also seeing in primary care. Exactly. And so then so if someone from CHCN were to come to us for that same specialty services, yeah. we would do fee-for-service. Fee fee-for-service. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any, any more questions? So we're going to look at the feasibility. We're not saying that we're going in this direction because, as you can imagine, there are a number of moving parts. Yeah. Um, and if we were to implement it, uh, which, as I said, I'm not sure that we will, it would certainly be after um, the epic go live. Yeah. So this is a way, just to kind of uh, um, level set our expectation set, because I could see some uh, sitting here two years ago and be like, what happened with that? We're going to do that. We're, we're, right. we're, we're nowhere near this. Yeah. We're, we're, we're only in the exploratory phase, and, and there'll probably be a lot more conversations, uh, both internally and with you, before we were to pull the trigger on something like this. But it is, it is a part of the trajectory that we're considering that you know, is, it makes sense from the perspective of not just looking at the care delivery and the population health piece of this, but also um, uh, some of the conversations that we've had before about how do you continue to sustain the system in the, in the uh, universe of declining supplemental reimbursement, where, where are the opportunities out there? And part of the opportunities, as we showed you through some data, just with one, one plan, the larger plan, albeit, was that there are several tens of millions, I forget what the number was, of dollars that are for services that are provided to people who get their primary care with us outside of our system. So is there a connection to the capital, I'm looking at Luis, uh, capital planning <laughs> that we've been talking about doing, uh, the finance committee? Seems like space. Uh, not uh, not yeah, yeah, so it's way too early, but right. you would know, hate to make a space decision that impacts uh, your ability to do absolutely. So, so right now when we do sort of assessments of, of um, capacity, we do it with the with some of the, uh, the structural underpinning of looking at what we currently have. And now, if we went to a plan where we were saying we really do want to explore this and we know that capacity may be a constraint, meaning um, we need some additional space in, in addition to. You know, providers and other resources, then that's when those two things would get tied together and we'd be thinking about it that way. But just so you know, uh, one of the models that we have long talked about, and I 
almost need to say this because we're still just talking about it, is we're, we're trying to not be confounded by the construct that everything we do has to happen in our space. So there are places, uh, to Dr. Abelotta's point earlier, where uh, people we serve who are not in our primary uh, care uh, uh, patient uh, construct or get specialty care from us are getting other services elsewhere. And if those services are amenable, meaning those uh, um, uh, providers, uh, um, uh, the, what they offer is not so heavily contingent on like fixed assets or constructs that they need, like you know imaging machines and things like that. If it's more of a cognitive-based service, that we may actually be able to kind of implant a provider in somebody else's space and be able to bring the services to the patient versus having to create the capacity ourselves. Yeah, I guess the last little thing is like, can we, in the meantime, while we're um, making these kind of decisions, rein in a little bit the out-of-network use just by working with our providers, because our, well, that means that they're being generated by our own primary care providers yeah. to refer them outside of our system? Yeah. Is that something we can work on? Yeah, we um, uh, are working on that. So we, I think before you joined uh, the, the board, we provided some background information on our out-of-network utilization okay. based from the alliance, and then based on that, um, we presented that information to each of the MECs. We got agreement uh, to implement a new uh, program that is being overseen by Dr. Uh, Minnie Swift, where if it's a specialty service and we have access within a 30-day period, mm -hmm. um, our providers are not authorized to go outside of that network. The only exception is for Newark because of Newark's um, geographic mm -hmm. access. We allow those providers to go out of network. Mm -hmm. And so we're tracking uh, in four areas um, today that are on your a true north um, That's on our system dashboard. Okay, fantastic. And, and that's just a point that we're going to be talking about this more at the next board board meeting because okay. we had some learnings around how we've been tracking that. I think I mentioned it in one of the updates I gave you all um, uh, around how we've been tracking that and reporting it that we want to uh, get your insight on. But we'll be talking more about that. But as long as it's available within 30 days, uh, clause. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that because I know that's been a, a, a problem for us, right, as far as the availability of specialty care. The access, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So we have, uh, on a monthly basis, we provide to all of our primary care providers and our specialists uh, a document that gives a sense of the access, you know, in terms of the number of days and wait times, and that's used okay. and updated on a regular basis. So we can certainly share that with you when we come back. Uh, that's great. That's issue. No, that's great. Okay. I think we should be happy to rest on our laurels that you've implemented primary care, that you've Okay. That all of that across the system is now under population health, and we just finished with that, right? We will, or almost finished with that. Finished. I mean, like, I, I think we can wait a year or two. <laughs> yeah, we're change management limitations. Time-wise, yeah, 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 there's yeah. some, exactly. You said it nicely. So we are, this is, yeah. this is future planning, not something right. that, right. We, we don't expect to see this in next year's budget. Right. We're not actually, we would be shocked if you tried to move it forward that quickly. Thank you. And bringing in the emergency department for our primary care patients would be interesting yeah. to think of before specialty care. That's just my little two cents because they're so integrally tied. Yeah. Mm. So global cap, um, the point here is really that we're not proposing to go global cap, which would be capitation for everything because in California it's, it's pretty clear that the state will require any entity that's global cap to have a not clean license health plan can be. And uh, we are not proposing to become a not clean license health plan. So, here's where I shift 
Here is where I shift to talking about some of the work that we're doing around social determinants of health and specifically focusing on the homelessness uh, population. I think this um, graphic is perhaps uh, familiar to everyone. You know, 70% of those things that impact someone's uh, health are uh, their own behaviors, but more importantly, the social and economic conditions under which they live, which I always like to say poverty. Poverty is a clear indicator of health status. So that's just, uh, so this I, I, um, I lifted from a recent article in uh, Health Affairs blog, and it talks about sort of uh, going upstream, right? And, you know, we are as providers really at the downstream level, you know, providing clinical care. And what we've tried to do at the individual level is to sort of work um, more upstream, really we're in the midstream level. You know, what are those things we can do um, that are beyond direct clinical care, be it either um, connecting people with housing, our food is medicine program to address the things that people tell us, certainly those individuals who come to us through our health advocates. Working upstream is really around the community impact, right? And that, really is around policy development and how we can participate in that policy development within the organization. But I think it's really important for us to recognize that what we're doing is we're trying to mitigate um, the social and economic challenges that people face. We're not yet at the uh, community impact stage because quite frankly, we can't do it by ourselves. That's really sort of the policy makers. You know, be it, you know, the things that the governor is doing, you know. I mean, the governor, we'll talk about this later, has created for the first time in the state a Surgeon General. And that Surgeon General's role is specifically around social determinants of health. Mm. And if anyone knows uh, uh, Dr. Nadine Burke, an uh, excellent uh, choice for that position, you know. So I think we're really looking forward to the work that could be done um, at the statewide level, that'll funnel down to the local level. Well, I would just say that I think the work that Luis and his team are doing around procurement is at that community impact level. Yeah. So that's just kind of what you're saying. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're not that sickly after all. <laughs> you look good. You look better. Thank you. Very good. Thank you. So what I thought um, uh, I would do is sort of focus this on. This is the part. Okay. You didn't so, miss it. So I thought um, given, you know, what everyone sees, you know, when they drive around uh, Alameda County, that it might be helpful to focus really on how we're working with our partner, our principal partner, the County Healthcare Services Agency, uh, in terms of housing needs for medically complex individuals. So the first thing I wanted to do is to give you, this is self-reported data from a run from our data systems, from our four data systems from SORIN. Um, the rate of homelessness as reported, about 6% of our patient population in this last uh, fiscal year indicated. Let's define homeless too, because I think everybody has a different notion of that mm -hmm. sometimes. Homeless doesn't necessarily mean that you have been on the street for days, right? Oh, it could be so just 
temporal, uh, you know, day. It could be that you are between apartments. It can be a lot of different. Yeah, please. The whole definition: you are homeless, uh, but the the definition, the, the delineation is if you're unsheltered. If you're unsheltered homeless, that means you are. Um, you're uh, in a place not meant for human habitation. But HRSA uh, has its own definition also, which is different than HUD. Right, right. But so, it's, so unsheltered is the ones in encampments, in vehicles, but so the homeless. So, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so the question is, is a very simple question. Are you housed or are you unhoused? Yeah. Mm -hmm. we, we, because we, we, um, we believe it's a difficult question to ask patients anyway, and so we don't want to go into levels of, you know, are you bunking with a friend, you know, how many days, so it's really simply, are you housed or are you unhoused? Yeah. Great. So this is your reporting. Right. Absolutely. 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 There is. If you live in a car on the street, you'd be ready. If you define that as housing, you could answer that with some sense. Yeah. Then we did look at, and actually the reason I had the second goal is because um, I was on a panel on homelessness and seniors um, uh, a few weeks or a month or so ago, and we were interested in getting information on those patients who were um, 60 and above. And that this is not surprising. The trend is that our homeless are becoming more and more, you know, aged. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. 25% of, 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 of the people in our. Of, of, in our. Of the, I understand, yeah. but it's a ratio, right? right. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. Right. And so, you know, what's the rationale? I probably don't have to go over these these slides, but really, you know, our ability to improve health status is severely compromised if people are not housed. Uh, we've talked about uh, this before. We know that it is expensive caring for this population. Um, because they are not housed and because they not, cannot keep up with their medication regime, the appropriate diet, you know, follow-up visits, um, et cetera. Uh, and we know that housing programs, and there's a reason why, you know, I, I feel fortunate to have, and Del Vecchio may say the same thing, having worked at the San Francisco Department of Public Health, which back in 1995 considered housing as a public health issue, right? So it is a public health issue if we are to um, do this kind of work uh, successfully, and it really is sort of, as I said, an equity issue. To date, you know, even before our um, increased partnership with HICSA, we um, contracted with licensed board and care facilities, with motels, with respite providers to ensure that individuals who were uh, needing discharge from our inpatient facilities had some place to go. Certainly our resources dwarfed in comparison to the need, um, right? Uh, we did retain a consultant, uh, Mark Trotz, who's also a consultant with Kathy, um, who did a lot of work in uh, San Francisco and in Los Angeles to really help us identify um, and help us uh, community-based options uh, for this population. And it's great that we have a consultant who's working with both entities uh, on this effort. So, um, wanted to first start with um, the uh, million dollars that the county um, had set aside five million for essentially a flexible housing. And um, you may recall they did this back in the late summer uh, of last year. 
Um, and it was modeled very similarly off of Los Angeles flexible housing pool. Um, and so uh, Kathleen Plannon has been a key partner of ours, came to us and said, you know, we know that we share patients, right? We know that there are individuals who come to AHS but who are also known to um, our outpatient mental health uh, contracted providers, our substance abuse providers. And so we want to help identify housing opportunities for those individuals whom we know are homeless, who are using both of our resources. And so um, to help facilitate that, last fall, county HICSA staff, and we do have a BAA and all of those kinds of things uh, in place, started participating in what are called our weekly long-stay meetings. So we have both at Highland and at Fairmount on a weekly basis, um, staff get together and they talk about individuals who've been in our facilities and long-stay is defined as 10 days or more, for whom we are having challenges discharging them. Uh, it could be that they're, you know, total care and we can't find a sniff that will take them and they're not on Medi-Cal managed care, so they're uninsured. Um, it could be that they need medical respite because perhaps they're housed, but um, they're, they live alone or maybe they live with someone who's unable uh, to care for them and provide them that recuperative type of uh, assistance. Um, so actually this number has increased uh, to nine. So since forming the partnership, um, they've been able to house for us uh, nine people, um, four from Fairmont, another four from Highland, and one from Park Ridge. I put in the appendix, um, I won't go through it, but it's on slide uh, 48, oh, I'm sorry, 51, yeah, 48. I think it's in your system. Um, it's a story of, uh, just because I think it's all often nice to, to, to see the, to hear about these. We had a patient who um, had come to us in early 2018. 60-year-old man who had been living in his car. Um, he had a right hip fracture, um, cognitively impaired, um, and we were able to treat him actually at Highland, but our ability to get him discharged was a challenge. Uh, he had no place to go because we found him living in his car. On top of that, um, the gentleman um, had a, an offspring, but the offspring. Level 2, it is 4 minutes. Charlotte team to ER, level 2, it is 4 minutes. But the offspring um, was homeless. Mm -hmm. And the offsprings offspring, child, was homeless. So there's three generations wow. of homelessness in one family. And so even if we were able to find something for the gentleman, he needed to have assistance in his home and finding a place that could accommodate three generations was challenging for us. We are not, you know, housing developers. Um, and so what HICSA did was it brought in its resources. We partnered with EBI, um, which is the East Bay Innovations, and right before Thanksgiving, we were they were able to secure housing for all three members of that family, allowing this patient to be discharged. And this patient had stayed with us for over 200 days. Wow. 
he would not have been able to um, discharge this patient without you know, that resource. And so it was critically important to have um, Hicksa as a partner um, with us. And is this permanently available house? Permanently available house. <coughs> How much did that patient stay cost? You know, I do have the numbers. I don't have it here, but I'm happy to. A lot. What's your average daily rate? Just a hospitalization is, I think, on average, $2,500 a night. And that's just a, the room rate. But, but am I understanding that correct? That since the million dollars came a lot online, bullet number three is the total numbers that you've been able to do so far because it's so cumbersome and it's so labor intensive and so on and so on, right? Right, but we continued. So for example, since I yeah, put yeah. this together, yeah. Yeah, two, we just placed two more. Yeah. So he could have stayed, his whole family could have stayed at the Claremont for a lower price than we were providing them. With just all services. Yeah. Huh? With spell services. Right. <laughs> Seriously. This is, when I was reading this stuff, it just blew my mind. I knew frequent flyers cost the system a lot. They do. The, the disproportionality of it is, is just shocking. And, and I'm, I'm glad that we have this partnership, and I'm glad that we've been able to place nine people. But it needs to be like 90, 90. Yeah. It, like now. I mean, and I want to know what we can do immediately to, to, to increase this. Like, I mean, it, if we had 10 million, just I'm sorry, to go off a little bit here. <laughs> the city just spent seven million on the Holland, you know, which can house up to 90 people. It's a transitional housing facility, and it's going to cost a couple million a year to run. We couldn't get the money from the county, so we're getting it from Kaiser. But you know what? Those 90 beds are golden in terms of the cost to the system. Mm -hmm. You know, if we had seven million to spend and could get 90 beds out of it to get people into transitional housing and out of our hospital, it would save us something like $30 million based on your, your stats, right? And, and I'm not saying we should make that investment, but we need to have that kind of urgency to, to, to this. Um, yeah, absolutely. Sorry. So, right. so, you know. I agree. Yeah. So this is our first foray. In fact, we had a meeting yesterday um, with uh, Mark Trotz and another consultant, uh, Rachel Metz, and our team headed by uh, Sheila Liswell in care management and Richard uh, Espinoza um, at uh, Fairmont. And the idea is what additional improvements can we make in our process to help speed along the identification of housing? Because we are finding that there are other housing options available. We're thinking of having EBI actually participate and be potentially on site with our care management staff. Um, EBIs. EBIs is East Bay Innovations. They've been contracted uh, right, right. with the yeah. county to help facilitate the identification of, of the housing options. So we're thinking of having them on site uh, to better identify uh, opportunities for us and to also um, uh, broaden the range. I'm sorry? It's a good idea. Yeah, to broaden the, the range of housing options. And we're specifically focused on um, how we can get more respite into um, the county. Um, there is actually a respite committee that I participate on that Kathleen Plannon um, is facilitating trying to identify additional respite housing options so that um, for those individuals who are housed who but for a variety of reasons can't go home immediately because they need perhaps anywhere from two weeks to perhaps two months. Uh, I think that's great yeah, but yeah. how many of these clients 
need permanent supportive housing, or even just permanent subsidized housing, not even supportive. Like, respite's good, but what of those frequent flyers, those, um, and I think it's on your next slide, uh, or it's in a couple slides, sorry I didn't bring my thingy. Yeah. But of those, like how many need, um, well maybe it's not, anyway, uh, permanent, permanent, uh, like, so we, we, the data that we have um, is from whole person care. Um, I don't have the figure right uh, off of the bat, but I believe that they had calculated medically complex, so it's a subset, you know, and uh, of individuals and who are all who are also homeless. I thought it was between 2,500 to 3,000. Now this was on Medi-Cal, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's just a subset of the population that they're focused on in part because of the waiver dollars. Obviously there are many more individuals um, who may not be medically complex, but who still need you know, permanent supportive housing. I'm happy to- Well, they become medically complex because yeah, they're back out yeah. on the street. Right, right, oh, absolutely they do. Yeah, they they stay in one of our beds for 200 days. Yeah, it, yeah I just- So this million is only for whole person care? No, no, no. So, okay. so this um, this million actually is separate from whole person care. Okay. So, whole person care is for people who are on Medi-Cal, and whole person care actually can't pay for housing. Right. 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 I meant the, so the million is for medically complex. I mean, people who essentially meet the same high utilizing that right. same definition of people. Exactly. So we're not talking about the person who has no chronic diseases but has a complicated fracture and could get discharged to the street, that person wouldn't be eligible for this. This is really for people who are either on SSI or on their way to SSI, is that? Potentially they might be on their way to SSI or they could be undocumented people who will never get SSI. Mm -hmm. um, we've tried to focus ours specifically on people who are long stay patients who could include mm -hmm. the range of individuals, you know, that you were talking about. So it's really people for whom we know that without a placement, they're just going to continue to be in an inpatient bed. We, the, um, the criteria has not gotten down to necessarily um, whether or not they are eligible for SSI or um, whether or not we should be focusing on those individuals who aren't medically um, complex. And I think in, in part, it's because of the limited dollars that are available. What, um, I believe you know, the county is trying to do is because this is a $5 million pool of which a million they've uh, decided to partner with us, they really want to, I think, be able to show the county and uh, the Board of Supervisors the results of this because this is one-time money. And so by showing the county that, in fact, we are able to house people, you know, that we are able to sort of reduce um, hospital-based costs, that hopefully that will provide an incentive to continue funding uh, this effort at a larger level. So we're really focused on sort of making sure that we can document um, the work that's been done to continue this work. But I think the questions that both of you have asked are the same questions that the, the county is asking. This is their first foray into this, um, right? And so they're trying to make it's sure. It's just so shocking to me. It's shocking. Let's shock the numbers. This is the first. That is the first foray. I know. Oh, and then the numbers. Oh, Alameda County. Over Alameda County. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I just, I just know what I see in the street. I mean, everybody. If three of your members who are intimately involved in homeless services right now, it's kind of interesting, and um, it's just. Um, but when you see the numbers for how much, and maybe they were earlier, there was that 82 million number for Alliance members that, or probably a 32 and a half million. Oh, that's um, later on. Yeah, oh, is yeah, it later? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I just look at numbers like that and think, wow. 
Um, we could you know, buy an old hotel and give them all a room for. Right. And that, that number would be just kind of housed or, or not housed. No, I understand. Open space. Yeah. Okay. It sort of strikes me that it's uh, all of the above. So we need respite care. We need permanent supportive housing. We need subsidized. I mean, we need all these things as a, as a system, but, but for as a, as a county, I guess. But for us, I mean, it, it, all, it strikes me that it would be important to hone in on the respite care because, the, because that's where we are keeping people because of a disposition issue, which is also meaning more wait times in the ER, longer time until people can get a bed. <laughs> And there's a, 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 t a point at which, um, and I'm probably not using the right terms, but where the, the plan is, is, is obligated to, to pay, and then there's a point where it's no longer medically necessary for them to be at the level of care we have them at, and now we're responsible, but we're in a catch-22 because we can't get, discharge them. And, and most of the people needing respite are probably not necessarily in the one you described where they have a home that they just can't go to, but most of the people that need respite are probably homeless or just un unstably housed. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I just, I, so I think this partnership is important. My sense is that it's going to be geared more towards people who will independently qualify for permanent supportive housing. Once this pool of money is over, they'll have SSI and other ways to have permanent supportive housing covered, which makes sense from a sustainability perspective. So I would think that that, that would be kind of where that would be going. But the part about the respite care, I don't see any anyone riding in on a white horse to fix this problem. And so I'm just wondering if, if do we have an internal sort of, um, group around and, and we talk about facilities and we're talking about things like that to create our own solution around respite care just for the purpose of saving dollars and opening beds. So um, the respite committee, we've met twice. So the respite committee, um, they said, is uh, overseen by Kathleen Clannon and what we're trying to do um, is first get all hospitals um, to actually contribute uh, to this. So it's not a hospital-specific um, issue, right? And um, you seem confused by that? No, no, no. okay. Um, uh, uh, and the reason why- The faces are the same. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. He has two faces. <laughs> and the other's confused. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the goal is to expand respite. So for example, we have been, um, we've been close, following very closely the work that's been going on in Alameda Point Collaborative. So Alameda Point Collaborative, we've are actually already signed a letter to, in support of that project, you know, as Rebecca will remember, saying, you know, when this project is up and operational, we want to purchase some of those bets. And we want to be able to say, these are the number of bets we want to purchase, and obviously we'd have to negotiate on the rate. Now that's going to be sort of two years down the line. So the issue is, what are we going to do now in two years to identify? But we are trying to identify other opportunities um, for uh, respite in the county. And I would just caution one quick thing is that the only path to respite care shouldn't be inpatient stay because right. people get identified who need respite care before they go through that whole costly thing. Mm -hmm. But right now all of the respite beds are sort of like AHS has to refer the person on discharge from inpatient. Um, and my understanding is that the clinics can't do it, your clinics can't do it, your ER can't do it. I mean, so it's just something to think about. A, it creates a perverse sort of process because you're saying, you know, this is, the, this is the gateway and then you're encouraging inappropriate yeah. use to, to get there. So, so let me ask this question about the 
person who is in our facility, and maybe Luis, you could comment on this, does that person who simply cannot be moved to another facility still stay in a room and a bed and they are still treated as if they need the same level of care as everyone else or do we do something to mitigate uh, the burden that that kind of scenario plays on nurses and staff around them? And, and I don't know if we do something different. Like, mm -hmm. like if you just can't get housing, but you're fine, can you, can you do something else inside our four walls that lessens the burden? So I'll speak to this well. Uh, uh, so obviously we, we have different levels of service that we offer in an inpatient setting. Yeah. We have um, uh, acute, we, uh, we have acute, we have acute rehab, and we have a, uh, skilled nursing. Uh, but the the level and intensity of the services and types of services that are offered in those settings vary based off of the setting. Um, there are, there are parameters that we can't um, we can't. Go below. Go below for certain. So, then, so, so, for example, if you are, you know, when we look at nursing ratios on an, in an ICU or an inpatient setting, those numbers are set by like just pure headcount. Uh, and in some cases, depending on where you are in your state, you may have a high intensity of services or either or lower, but the ratio is set off of sort of a blend of what you may need. So when we have patients who've stayed for a long time, let's say that their medical needs have gotten to the point where even the plan is saying this patient. Not only does this patient no longer need to be here, but I'm not paying you for that patient to stay mm -hmm. here. Uh, you've got to figure out how to place that patient, mm -hmm. irrespective of whatever your challenges mm -hmm. are. Um, I can't then say, well, hey, nurse, um, Don't do rounds I can't that. move this patient, um, and the patient's going to still be in the bed, but I'm going to give you five other patients, and that's your sixth patient, but they don't need anything. But just, just, you know, so you, and I don't have like, you know, um, you don't need this bed, so I'm just going to put you in the room for three or four more days until we find somewhere else to put you. You know, they, it just, it won't fly. And so we just end up with what Dr. Avalon had described, which is sort of a, a, a backlog. Um, and quite honestly, in some instances, you end up with situations where something happens to the person, whether it's a clinical thing, because, you know, they're in the setting and so can we, um, we got sorry, sorry about you, but I, I think we all, I like what you said, Fairmont. So we've got this building that's about to be empty, yeah. right? It's a little portion. A portion, right? A big portion. How many thousand, how many square feet? Uh, probably 20,000 square feet. Okay, so 20,000 square feet, you could probably do how many uh, SRO style rooms? This is a county building, right? Yeah. If for respite, you don't need to do rooms. Yeah. You can do beds. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, and, and it's mostly about the configuration. I mean, so there's, is there, is there a level of care requirement for respite? Is there licensing? I'm sorry. Yeah, there's no, no, they're not licensing. There's no licensing. There's a level of care. There's a level of care, but that's a That would be, you know, even lower than a sniff. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, Trustee Jensen just made a point that's important here. This is accountability. Great. We are service providers in the building, uh, but the good thing uh, about it is that uh, this this type of thinking is what's occurring internally. And uh, we have joint meetings with the county as our partners, and we just had one last week. And, this uh, week, and on Monday. 
Was it Monday? They all work together. They all just... So that was just Monday, yes. Uh, we had this conversation on Monday, uh, but there is some discussion around what happens post-December this year, or January next year, when uh, the H building is vacant, and what is the highest and best use for it. And there are a number of considerations, and this is certainly one of them. Well, can we, as a board, um, elevate those conversations from the administrative level to the political level, and can we make take a position on what we think is the best use based on based on this based on this data? I mean, you may have, I, I don't know what other uses you're considering and the administration's thinking about, but to me, I can't think of a better a better use. And so, if it helps that this board take, takes that position and speeds up that decision making process. Well, it's, so it's, we're ready to it's just, I don't, I don't, I don't know that it will help to uh, speed up anything, to be honest. Uh, uh, I think uh, at this stage, the conversation is really about uh, the, the details of it all. Because it, it, espousing a principle about what should happen is one thing, but then figuring it all out, because it may well be that if it is respite services, that the county agrees that that's how it should be used, but that we shouldn't be the provider of it. Right. So, you know, it's, it's sure. And we, we may be perfectly fine with that, but we may say then, as tenants in the space, what are some of the other sorts of things that we need to make sure are considered as we move in this direction? So, so I, I, I'm just saying, I don't think that at this point, my point of sharing this with you was to say, one good on you for thinking this way to, to let you know we're, idea. we're thinking about it as, 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 as well. Ideas yes, for committing about that space as well. Well, that well, well, one other idea, for example, so again, coming back to a lot of these conversations, which I think is fantastic, uh, again, to just point that out, uh, is uh, um, it, it gets us the opportunity to have a much broader conversation around health and wellness and uh, in our community beyond what we do as a care provider and what you are responsible for as a government entity is sort of like look beyond the impact on our bottom line yeah. sorry it's correct yeah. well, that, and that's why we go back to the other part of this which is uh, we continue to have a responsibility and obligation as an organization of which one of the big things and this is actually a conversation that has started to kind of begin to percolate through uh, finance because it has uh, implications on facilities and dollars uh, as well is our, our sort of uh, real estate stock if you will, uh, and, and uh, much of that that we don't own, but how, is, how are those things going to be used? What are we accountable for? What are we running? All those things. Um, we have sniff capacity that is, quite honestly, and you heard about this in the last meeting, in very deplorable states, or less suboptimal states. And one of the ideas, just so you know, one of the things we've been thinking about is the sniff of Fairmont has some deferred maintenance. Uh, there is a prospect that you could sort of begin to scale that by saying, even if I don't want to expand my state capacity, which is also a consideration, I could maybe now leverage the domino of a, vac a, a, a vacant space to improve one space, move a space while I improve it, you know, kind of do that chill game. Uh, but that's a, a part of increasing the or improving the services we offer, improving the bottom line for organization, all those sorts of things. Uh, while though there is this broader, I think, uh, community benefit piece, and again, at the end of the day, none of it is our space, so it's somebody else's decision what happens with the space. We, we can inform it and support so it. So do, do we have the ability to charge other facilities for use of that space for SNF? Do we have it? Yeah. No. 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 Okay. We're not the only. But they did the runs of it. Wasn't it like a couple of weeks ago that they came and like to the yes. Fairmont facility? Uh, yes. Yeah, they, 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 they,
But it, it, there are other things that are happening in and around the campus too that we're talking about. So in addition to this, that also are uh, designed to look at creative, and this is credit to them, and they talk to us about it as uh, tenants on the campus, uh, other sorts of uh, expansionary thoughts around how we may provide coordinated services to a marginalized population, in particular the homeless population that's already on that campus. Uh, that we've talked about right. before. So I, I want to create a little bit of a framework for this. I, it seems to me that there are a series of responsibilities and questions that the Alameda Health System has related to this area of concern. And then most of the responsibility lies outside of the system with the safety net uh, responsibility lying with Alameda County. So uh, if that you know, if that is a uh, factual uh, way to frame this, then we need to go through our process of deciding what we want to do internally with our resources, and probably we'll find out pretty quickly, or maybe we can determine that right now, stipulate to it, that our big, the bigger context, Alameda County, is not planning adequately to meet the need for the uh, depth of housing gap that we have. And it's impacting our system. It's quite frankly impacting Alameda County as well. Correct. So one of the things I, I would propose um, that we start to do is take a leadership role, start to advocate for a shift in the way we're thinking and talking about this. So there's social determinants, mm -hmm. but there's also just hard, cold cash. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that um, when you do not have a coordinated uh, plan for addressing people who are vulnerable, right. housing need, that's a basic human need, folks. When you do not have that, you have incredible cost shifting. Yep. We're realizing some of it, a lot of it. A lot of it. Okay. And, but it's also elsewhere mm -hmm. within areas that the county is responsible for. It's in the jail system. It's, you know, it's in the law enforcement um, side of things. It's in the mental health. That's our responsibility as well. It's in school. It's in school. We, we go on and on, right? And Public works. It's, uh, it's impacting cities and things that they're responsible yeah. for. So I think we need to frame um, our social determinants and cost shifting that's going on because we're not dealing with this. I'll tell you this right now. My organization is involved in three projects in the city of Oakland. Two of them are not going to happen. Mm. These are projects that would permanent support housing for homeless people. Mm. They're not going to happen because Alameda County is not prioritizing its housing fund to special needs homeless people. Wow. Okay? So I think we ought to, I mean, that's obviously a personal, my agency has an advocacy challenge there to overcome and be involved in. But I'm providing that as an example of how bad this situation is in Alameda County. Mm -hmm. It's not coordinated, and it's not prioritized, mm -hmm. this need. I want to compliment staff, because it really feels like we're stepping one step forward yeah. on our planning and coordination. The fact that you're meeting on a regular basis to look at discharge to specific yeah. clients, very exciting that you're connecting and collaborating with the county folks that are really trying to do something about this, that's real progress. But the big bulk of this is quite frankly out of our 
air of responsibility. So that, the framework I'm talking about is let's double down on what we're doing, mm -hmm. and then we need to engage the system beyond us. And I'd, I'd echo your earlier point, which is uh, from a governance perspective, and, and to get to your, your point too, Trustee DeVries, uh, uh, this is the, uh, the type of thing that would be a, a, a very reasonable thing for the board to say when we're talking to the county, here's what this board would like to hear from our partners, which is healthcare services, but goes beyond healthcare services to say, what are we doing and how we're working together as you know, but a part of a broader network to figure out how we serve, how we serve the population. Well, is, is there any way, let, let's do this, can we have a graphic that has, what is the cost of homelessness to our system? Okay. And, and invite, yes. and invite, what is the cost of homelessness to public works, to, to all of those different elements, because I think Luis is bringing up something really essential here. We know that we're paying the price for it in all of the ways that we have. But I think the fact is we only have jurisdiction over our, you know, four walls here, right? right. And, and yet we're being held liable for all of this all the time when the budget doesn't meet what, you know, the Board Correct. of Soups expects of us. And we're, made, and we're made to feel or seem like we're being irresponsible when the truth of the matter is is that this population is the juggernaut. It, it is the group that we need to figure out what to do. And if that building were available to do what we're talking about, just imagine taking the person who just doesn't need all of that service mm -hmm. to a site where they're cared for in a way that's humane, compatible with all of our values and goals, but it isn't taking up a bed. I, that, that is the fundamental thing we need to be able to say to somebody. Look, we care for this person. They just don't belong inside one of our beds. I, I wonder, um, you know, this mental health field comes up all the time. Yeah. You know, and I think sometimes when you're talking about the cost savings, the fear is, okay, that what happens is by moving out that inappropriate patient, it allows somebody who's more appropriate to be in the bed. It's not sort of like no. if you save a half a million dollars to hospital. So that I, I sometimes wonder if, if you did something where if you assume that in the emergency room you didn't have this backlog of people who were without a place to stay. If you had somebody, if you had places to discharge people to, what your system would look like. Mm -hmm. In other words, then I think there would be some real savings to the system. And part of the savings, frankly, would be generating more income. Mm -hmm. You know, because you have other people that you're... And, and, and just imagine if you didn't have to... You know, I went, what I've heard about the ER is fabulous, right? Except we've got this horrible problem where we've got these backlogs. Yep. And just just imagine if we could eliminate those backlogs, people would be lining up at the doors to, to get more services from the system. If I could, I just want to add one point to the great discussion. And as we were just focusing and we were having a brief conversation around you know, the H building, the relocation of rehab, the available space there, 
there's other buildings in Fairmont that could easily be repurposed. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that I keep the focus on. We have administrative okay. functions that we can relocate and leverage and partner with okay. the county and leverage some of that other space to look okay. at this from a more campus-wide type of initiative. Yeah. I, just, I keep emphasizing because I, I really think there's some opportunities that we should continue to, right. to, to pursue. Yeah. Okay. I agree. I, I mean, I think we can't we can't address all these huge system problems, and it is very frightening to me. And maybe we need to talk offline about opening <laughs> questions. No, but <laughs> but but I think that in terms of um, sort of the bottom line issues, um, and also where the demand really is, and where there's also potential for savings and maybe even revenue generation, would be around looking at what would it take for us to stand up our own respite care um, facilities, because at some point also. You have the payer alliance who will pay the price for the higher bed day that really could be at a lower cost up to a certain point and then it becomes sort of like our liability too so just saying that to say i mean i think there's still opportunity to to build a different level i just don't know with us being at the status we're at as a hospital what we're allowed to do as far as a respite as an unlicensed sort of um, respite if that's something we're allowed to do or would it all really have to be just more sniff capacity so i don't i don't know those details i would i would like to because i think it's important um, that we you know there's a there's an inhumanity about what's going on out out there in terms of our elders being on the streets in terms of people who are discharged from hospital to street you know many of them elect to do that i mean i'm not this isn't um pointing fault at anybody that just the system can't um handle it all um, at least if we can address that part of once we've provided the care you know that we're not we're not having to discharge to, to street um, that we have some control over that um, whether it's us building out ourselves if we find out that that doesn't make sense maybe it is about um, contracting or looking at who else is doing it and, and should we be I'm sure we have some already but I mean do we need to expand those partnerships um, but that piece just strikes me as something where I feel like we do have sort of an imminent like a responsibility that we obviously because of the new law as well even more you know heightened I guess the awareness of it um, but also where um, it could maybe save us funds but also maybe that could be a place where other hospitals could discharge to right. where the plans would be paying for some of those right. days I mean whether where it might make sense from a business perspective as well yeah. mm -hmm. and the plan initiatives that are participating in the respite conversation I want to jump in. I don't know what you guys were doing this morning before I got here, but you're 35 minutes behind schedule. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we spent a lot of time talking about you. Am I reading the expression? Sure. Uh, I believe Rick Kibler's waiting uh, in the wings to, to, to get into our compliance topic. Um, do do we, we have, do we need to have a lot more to cover? Or are we? You, you tell me what you prefer. I just you know. Huh? Stop? I, it's it's your prerogative, but I, I, I do think that you know we've, we've had a quite a robust yeah. discussion. Yeah. Uh, we, we, there are some pieces around kind of what's happening with the EMR and and our public health records. You can bring this back. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean yeah. the commercial. Okay, oh, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> 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 yeah. Wait, uh, you're they snoring already. Mark doesn't like that. Uh, oh. uh, <laughs> it's me too. Aww. Oh, you can't do this. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I think uh, I, I support the chair's uh, direction here. I think we should. And, and, I, and I just want to point out that when I went over the PowerPoint, you know, the 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 impact that Epic will have on our ability to, to oversee population health, it, it, I think hopefully everyone knows that already. Like we we've been briefed on it, and, and so. 
it's a really good thing, right? It is. Yeah, and so thank you. And I like your key question, Tangerine, on the two slides before. As an anchor institution, how can AHS influence, support, community level, policy actions that will address social determinants of health? Yeah, great. I think that's what you were saying to us as well. It seems like something we need to... Yeah. <laughs> yes. I recommend that we, we continue this conversation we at future board members. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. And maybe even retreat. And, and one thing I'd like, and I'll just tell you, and I, I, I know that we, we, we booked this retreat together quickly um, and um, there's a there's a portion of population health that sits in the in the public health department that I'd like to have more of a conversation around they have an asthma program they have a diabetes program uh, an obesity program where they're out in neighborhoods or trying to be and I think with epic we could do maybe a better job identifying and, and maybe we do and our board just doesn't isn't aware of it but it's that it's that that connection to the work being done in a neighborhood like we South Tennessee, our conversation. Or South Tennessee, where, where the public health department has funded these right. social capital improvement efforts, and mm -hmm. and we want to link that. You know, they have an anti-smoking campaign. You know, they, they, they provide HVAC uh, vacuum cleaners to people mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. asthma to mm -hmm. reduce hospitalization. Yeah, and I'm not sure how well we're connected to those programs, or, or even really how effective those. Pro I, mean, I used to partner with them for the past grant I worked on, and so. That granular level of, of service delivery and connection to our county partners, I'd love to have us explore. April. 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 There you go. I mean, I think one okay, of the things... we got to be careful when we get close to the budget. So we'll no, that's true. Well, remember, we'll have another one of these, and I think this next step might be part of that discussion, but we do have a lot of time on that one for the budget, okay. I think. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. Thank you, Tim. Thank you so much. Thank you. I what on schedule? Oh, we should probably spend about half an hour on this. Does that sound, does that sound right? Half an hour? That would work. Okay, great. Unless you have a lot of questions. Okay, okay no that's questions. entirely on us. <laughs> Want me to go ahead and start? Yeah. Okay, so those of you that don't know me, I am Rick Hitler. I'm the VP of Compliance and Internal Audit. I've been with uh, AHS for almost eight years, and I've been over the compliance function for three and a half. And today I've brought Akimi Ren. Uh, she's the assistant director of compliance, and she's here to support me, uh, especially if you start asking tough questions. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm going to spend the next 20 or 30 minutes talking about compliance and some of the things that we've faced here, uh, which hopefully will help you uh, learn more about what we do and what risks we have as an organization. Okay? And so, uh, I think you've all got this package in advance. Uh, governing boards have a responsibility to make sure that there's a robust compliance function that we identify issues and that we take some kind of corrective action to make sure that we mitigate these risks in the future. Now, to do this, we set up the compliance program following the OIG guidance. They don't give specific rules because every organization is different, but they give you some basic elements to follow. We call those the seven elements. Uh, that would be designating a compliance officer, which is me, uh, 
developing policies and procedures, conducting uh, training and education, uh, doing, uh, having effective lines of communication, uh, monitoring and auditing, uh, enforcing our standards, and uh, responding promptly to issues that are raised. So we've kind of set up our whole program to uh, follow this guidance. Uh, we've established a hotline for communications. We've been doing training throughout the organization. Uh, we respond to every issue that's brought to us and uh, try to get those resolved as timely as possible. So what I wanted to do today, there's a, a few issues that we've had that keep coming up and I wanted to talk about those and what we've done about those. Uh, so we have privacy monitoring, exclusion screening, and then staffing without appropriate license. And, and so these are all issues that have uh, happened recently and we'll talk about each of those and what we're doing. So privacy monitoring would be the first one. And why is this important? Well, we have a number of laws that require us to uh, maintain privacy of patients. So you've got HIPAA, which is uh, you know pretty significant. Uh, we can be fined up to 1.5 million per violation. And Rick, I'm going to interrupt. Can we have our sound folks? Yeah. Can you closer to the mic? Oh, okay. I have the gates turned up. Can you get so the mic closer away. to your mouth, I think? Okay. That, that'll help with the feedback. Thank you. Okay. Sorry. Uh, so, 1.5 million per violation and up to 10 years in jail. And Del Vecchio has assured me that he does not look good in stripes and wants me to take care of this stuff. Uh, so, we have uh, the California state law, CMIA, uh, which Again, that has some 250,000 per violation uh, and up to 10 years in jail, but this is more uh, personal liability. So this could go down to the person that commits uh, a HIPAA violation that they could get uh, jail time for this. Uh, then we have the uh, Lanterman Petra Short Act uh, for mental illness patients, which means there's a higher standard for uh, anything involving mental illness. Uh, and we have the substance use disorder or uh, SUD uh, regulation for people with substance abuse that we've got to make sure we maintain confidentiality there, another higher level of than HIPAA. So there's a lot of things pertaining to this. We have to make sure we're, we're doing things right as an organization. So what's happened? Uh, in the last six months, we've had nine cases where employees have done what we call snooping, and they've looked at records uh, that we think was inappropriate. Uh, so we, those nine cases involve 32 employees. We're uh, reporting those to the uh, CDPH and Office of Civil Rights. Uh, as required. We have a time limit to do that. We have to do it within 15 days for CDPH or we start getting fined $100 per day. Uh, and we don't have to complete the investigation. We just have to notify them that we have an issue uh, while we work with HR to do the investigation and see what kind of uh, action needs to be taken. 
Uh, and so we're working through those. We've had a, a number of uh, letters of intent to terminate sent to employees as a result of these acts and are working through the appropriate uh, Skelly hearings and uh, making sure we have all of our ducks in a row uh, before they're actually terminated. But uh, it's an ongoing process. So we have some other risks relating to HIPAA, uh, and that would be personal email communicating PHI, uh, using personal devices to take uh, patient photos, <coughs> and texting of PHI. Uh, and so we've been. Oh, I'm sorry, Rick. I interrupt. On, on the back on the last uh, slide, uh, those violations seem a lot more serious and appear as if they have some sort of intent, as opposed to the, the next ones, which could have been inadvertent. Is that fair to say? I, I'm just shocked by this, and I'm wondering what, how often, like, is that a normal number for a system our size? So. We haven't had that many violations that we've known about uh, in the last few years. We had something come up uh, five or six years ago where we actually terminated uh, about a dozen employees for looking at uh, patient records inappropriately. Um, Do we know the intent? Most of them had indicated it was out of curiosity. They, they wanted to know what was going on. They knew a certain employee was in the hospital. They wanted to find out about it. How do you and know that these things happen? Or is it like you have a hunch and then you go after it, or is there a way for us to scan the entire system? Uh, we do not have uh, the ability to scan the entire system. What we can do is on an individual uh, patient basis, we can pull an audit trail and look to see who's accessed that account identify if they were on the care team or not. We work with management uh, of those people to say, why was your person looking at this record? Is it appropriate or not? If they say not, then we continue the investigation. So, so you have to start with a suspicion. It's, it's a lot of work, uh, and it's, it's a manual effort. So did uh, this come through? Through a hotline or somebody, usually somebody? Uh, so sometimes we get a complaint uh, that the patient says, you know, somebody came up to me and asked me about my uh, oh. illness. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't have known. So we start an investigation okay. at that point. Will EPIC make it easier to track this? Yes. Yes, and yes, we'll talk about that okay. in just a minute. Sorry. Okay, so we have these other issues and uh, are taking steps to minimize those. So what have we done to reduce our risk? Well, we've updated the right. sanctions policy to make it more stringent because currently it was four levels of violation. You know, you, you did it, you really meant to do it, you shouldn't have done it, and wow, we're really pissed. So it's... It got too fluffy. It was uh, too much wiggle room. So we said, you either did it accidentally, meaning maybe you sent a fax to the wrong person or gave a person the wrong medical record by accident, or you went and intentionally looked at these records. Uh, we're going to take this real seriously. 
so getting the communication out on that will, will help. Uh, doing more proactive monitoring uh, will, will help. Uh, additional privacy training to make sure that people understand you cannot do this. We absolutely uh, take this seriously. Uh, and then working with EPIC to uh, improve our monitoring capabilities. So in EPIC, uh, just the, the thumbnail version, they have what they call break the glass. If you're not assigned to the care team, you don't have access to the record. If you try to access it, they flash up a warning. They say, are you sure you really want to go there? Hmm. Mm. Yes, you're breaking the glass. It's what's your reason for doing this? You have to put in a reason. I'm doing an audit. I'm providing patient care or something. Uh, that report will come to compliance. We will have to review every one of those and say, was that appropriate or not? Uh, because you could say you were on the care team, and if there's no indication you really are, then that would be a problem. So it's it's going to be a lot of work. We're anticipating a lot of uh, uh, reports on that, uh, especially at first, because we're going to be getting used to it. But uh, it it will make it easier, and it won't be the reactive. Uh, get a complaint, look at the record. Okay, exclusion screening. Uh, so the OIG mandates that you cannot hire somebody if they've been excluded from participation in a government program. Uh, so they've been focusing on this a lot, and we have 5,000 employees, 1,100 positions, 1,500 contractors. That's, that's a lot of people uh, to review uh, on an ongoing basis. So what's happened here? Well, our HR, our contracting staff, our uh, medical staff office, they do exclusion screening at hire. And then they're done. And once you're hired, nobody was looking at this stuff. So we took it on uh, in compliance, and we were started doing a quarterly review of everybody. Uh, and what we found is, uh, in the last year and a half, two years, is two people that were excluded that we had uh, on staff. Now, one of those was a, uh, a clinical staff member. The other one uh, was a analyst. Uh, so what happened was that they were hired. We did the checking. They were OK. But after we did the checking, the OIG retroactively put them on the exclusion list. Because we didn't have an ongoing process, we didn't know. One of these people had been here 18 years. Uh, the other one we identified at three months. Uh, so as a result of the one that had been here 18 years, we paid a $257,000 fine. And we didn't like that. Uh, and part of our corrective action plan was that we would start doing exclusion screening monthly. So that, uh, again, is increasing our workload, but we're going to continue doing that monthly. Uh, we work with compliance, uh, HR, and anytime we identify an employee, we're 
going to get them on administrative leave immediately. We're going to take action. And until they can clear themselves from that uh, exclusion list, they're not going to work here. Can you give us a general idea of what, why, what, what reasons people are on these exclusion lists? Uh, so basically, if you committed uh, some kind of financial fraud against a government program, you submitted false claims or uh, you know something like that, they would exclude you from participation going forward. Or if you caused harm uh, to a patient, mm -hmm. uh, it, I mean, there was, there's a number of reasons that you could be excluded, but basically if the government thinks that you're a bad uh, actor, uh, employee, prospect, they're just going to say you can't work here. So Rick, a quick question. I know that when you do your, you know, what does the compliance program do and what are your priorities, you're stratifying the risk like these things are really high risk for the organization. These are moderate risks. These have a lot of financial impact. Like if you're caught, you got to pay huge penalties. So in terms of this, like two incidences in two years, which I still feel is a loss, but in terms of risk, like how is that? How do you see that for our organization? I don't see that as that high of a risk, but uh, if, if we didn't do the screening and we identified additional employees that had been sanctioned and excluded from the program, uh, we could lose the ability to participate in government programs. So hiring excluded employees isn't that high, but we found two out of 5,000. Not bad. But uh, the risk that you run if you hire those excluded employees is, is significant. Okay. Thank you. Ricky, you're also including governing. Uh, the poor trustees need to be included in that service, right? I believe that's the regulation. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it, you should be, and if you were on the, uh, I will verify that you're on the list. We yeah. we get a list from HR. No, that we're not on the list. No. <laughs> <laughs> you will be added to the list. That's actually a common violation area. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things we do is is we get a list of all the people that have badges uh, to make sure that oh. we yeah. run that. So. We should be capturing you. Uh, but I will verify that. One of the er we had to do some due diligence in this area too. One of the areas that was a blind spot was about uh, contractors and who they hire. Um, and so, I mean, one thing that we had to institute was, or we instituted, was that the contractors had to supply us a list of all the people that were on are on the subcontract, so that we could run them through too. So I'm just wondering if that's something. That we're doing we we do that uh, we work with contracting department and we identify all the contract help uh, and again we do the badge reports and we do uh, the, the HR reports and yeah, where it might get sticky, I'm just thinking about us as an organization, how big, you know, it would be things that happen off-site that are sensitive, like maybe, I don't know, if we have outside contractors that do any of our IT or billing or any of those kind of things where they have access, and where that contractor, maybe they hire and fire people on an ongoing basis, and are they notifying us if new people are working on our account and that kind of thing. So, just so typically, they're required to do that under the contract. Um, 
That is one of the uh, standard provisions of the template is that, you know, they have an obligation to satisfy, you know, any responsibility for not employing excluded individuals. Um, and it's also one of the items that would be covered by the indemnity provision. So there is at least, you know, the notion of recourse with respect, you know, to, to both advising them of their obligations and then having a way to follow up. You know, the point of, you know, but I think those are good points that we made that we should look at in terms of what we're doing as part of the quarterly screening because I don't know that we have, that we specifically have the detail of the, uh, what we want them to do and so we can lay that out I think better and then I guess along those lines too in terms of recourse or self-disclosing or whatever when we hire new employees are they sort of advised and asked specifically to sign up that they're not currently excluded and that there's no pending proceedings that they're aware of I, that they're aware yeah I vaguely recall this being a question I had to answer at so. so some of the rules in, in the HR uh, arena have changed, and uh, I believe that that's not a question you can ask. You cannot do a background check until you have an offer letter in hand. Uh, but you could at that point. But, yeah. but I mean, at that point. No, I think we do at that point, though, right? I, I recall being asked if I was on any uh, excluded those. Yes, but, but it's been a while since you were hired. No, uh, that, that's a recent change. But I'm saying what you're just saying is, uh, is we may not be able to do it as a part of the school. Well, what was the question? The yeah. question is, do we, as a part of the hiring process, uh, ask employees to self-disclose or, uh, you know, affirmatively or, or uh, not that they are on any excluded list? Or? Yes, post off with pre-hire. And what about the... Pending, any pending, because a lot of times someone gets terminated because of a suspicion. Then it takes years for the OIG, I think, to do what they do. So if they're aware of any possible pending procedures. I, I don't know that we can specifically ask that question anymore, that we could ask them if there's a pending legal action against them yeah. until the point of conviction or until the point that they're found guilty of something. It's not something we could use to prevent the hiring of someone. Um, at the point there is, then they need to self-disclose of their internal policies. So mm -hmm. I think it's to do it presumptively ask. would be problematic for us. So we don't. But if we knew that there was a pending proceeding, couldn't we check more frequently? Or I don't know. I'm just thinking. If we knew that there was, could we be more proactive? Or you're saying you just have to? I, I mean, I think it's problematic. I don't think it's a simple thing for us to look into. You know, Rick's team are running the reports on a monthly basis. Um, could you run it individual? And then what would be the basis for that check? The fact that they've told you there's something pending. I mean, that's like saying. You know, I'm fighting a conviction for something, and you're going to keep running a background check on me. You can't do that. You know, you've got to get permission to run a background check on any individual, on each individual case, and to be clear on the purpose of that. So I think it's, it is complicated. I don't, I don't think there's a simple answer to it. I understand the question and the reasoning we would want to do it, but there's also some risk that we'd have to really make a, a thorough legal assessment of what what our abilities are in that area. So, perhaps make a lot, uh, a lot of sense if we hadn't taken this more universal approach mm -hmm. of now just screening everybody because we've had these instances mm -hmm. of people, you know, one, you know, sort of uh, uh, closer in uh, um, connection to us starting the program, but one who's a carryover from having been a county employee for right. like, uh, over a decade ago, right. uh, that, that just the approach of saying we're going it, to, it's, it's fairly um, easy to hit a button and like run everybody at the same time and just be doing a surgical approach to one or two people who may or may not have disclosed.
with their oh, services sorry. you can buy too. Yeah, I was planning on not talking. So. <laughs> so, so I think we've got it covered because we do it at hire. We're going to do it on a monthly basis going forward. Uh, we have two cases. One we got fined for. The second one we followed up quickly, identified the person, and have never heard back from uh, the OIG once we reported it. So we're not on any compliance monitoring or anything like that. We just did the self-disclosure, got a fine, and move on. Yes. Okay. Okay. So staff working without appropriate licenses. Well, yes. we've got 900,000 uh, licensed uh, clinicians in the state of California that uh, have to maintain their licenses, have to maintain uh, their ongoing uh, CEUs to make sure they're up to speed. Uh, it's, there's a lot of requirements here, and you know, CDPH, OIG, everybody's looking at this stuff. So what's happened here? Well, we identified a radiology uh, employee that let their license uh, get suspended, and they worked for nine months. And it was only because we heard things through the grapevine and investigated that we were able to determine because they didn't tell anybody. Uh, so we finally determined that they didn't have a license and we uh, had to take action on that and then HR compliance who does uh, the checking annually when they're uh, coming up for renewal uh, identified somebody that they were this is an all-clear message for Columbia, There were two days before they were taken off the schedule. Uh, we had a little glitch. We notified management, and they didn't see the notification. Uh, so we're, we're reviewing our reporting requirements on those. We think we have an obligation to report one of them to the OIG. Uh, the other one we're, we're still looking at to see what we need to do there. Uh, but we're, we're working with HR compliance and they're implementing EverCheck. And EverCheck is going to do ongoing monitoring. It's going to be on a daily basis. If we see anybody uh, re-notify management, we get them off the schedule immediately. Uh, I think that that's going to be, uh, we're going to recommend that requires a phone call, not an email. I thought it was just clear. I know. So, uh, we, we are somewhat concerned that the implementation of this is going to identify other people and, it, and we're going to have uh, increased workload for a little while, but uh, it, it should work out well going forward, uh, especially with people know that we're, we're monitoring that on a daily basis. Okay, so now it's time to play Kahoot, and then we'll be done. We can have lunch. So does everybody have uh, a mobile device? And let's work some logistics here. If you can log on to the internet and go to 
Kahoot.it. You can see it up there, Kahoot.it. Play Kahoot. And we've got 10 questions we're going to ask. And what you do is look at the question and the color, and you're going to press the appropriate color on your handheld device to get uh, to record your answer. Do we have and to download the app the or do we just enter the pin? Yeah. Uh, here will be the pin. Okay, so what? Wait, I want the Jeopardy music. <laughs> so once you get in there, you will press a name. It doesn't have to be your real name. You can can be anonymous. <laughs> oh, just, got just in case you want to, you miss some questions, you may not know who it was. Okay. I'm going to put my name in. Oh, I think... <laughs> I actually had somebody do this once and, and several people entered Rick as their name. <laughs> it made me look bad when they missed questions. <laughs> so is anyone having trouble logging in? that and you get points for getting the right answer and you get more points the quicker you answer and it will keep track of everyone's score okay okay no, it says like never. That was his slow experience delays. No. Okay, so who has to follow the HIPAA law? The color, just tap the color that corresponds to the appropriate answer. 
Okay. Can we hold on? Too fast. Pietro actually does also need public health. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Two six eight. Two six zero. Okay. So six zero. You're you're not. Oh, what happened to me? Question three. Examples of protected health information include. you didn't know tattoo of girlfriend's face could be PHI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you never it know where that tattoo is. Yes, that would be inappropriate. Tattoo could okay. be on your back. Next. <laughs> Ivy is in the lead. Yeah. Under what circumstances are you free to access and share PHI? Okay, HIPAA requires what form of patient information be protected and remain confidential? What should you do in a crowded elevator when a coworker starts to discuss PHI with you? Okay, so Steph Curry is a patient of AHS. She wants to know more. use or disclose PHI without patient authorization. <laughs> when a member of the C-suite says it's okay. 
Physical security includes which of the following? Locking doors and the Second and third, don't get it. <laughs> you get a pat on the back. <laughs> this is not that kind of game. <laughs> or you get the bag. There you go. Thank, thank you for this. This is good. <laughs> you get extra screen. Yeah. So that, that was fun. That thank was cute. Thank you. About anything that I like that. About. I like that app. It's really cool. No, it's great. How expensive it's is that app? Actually, it's free. Oh, wow. That's so really it's, good. It's um, use in education. Yeah. So you can use it in any nice. I like that. Yeah. All you have to do is figure out what questions and yeah. what answers. Yeah. And put them up. Put them in there. And I give you a number to log into. But you had to display it on your PowerPoint. Does it come with that ability? Uh, yeah. You have to have some device. Oh. You have to have internet. Oh. Any type of um, device you have, computer or you know, um, phone or anything, and it's, you put as many questions as you like, um, but it's, yeah, you can set the time, meaning that you you can give people 20 seconds, this is 20 seconds, okay, but you can put it for a shorter time or longer, um, seconds for people to come up with the answers. That's why it went pretty quickly, mm -hmm. uh, because we set it for 20 seconds for each question, and we had 10 questions. So, it's a 
it's a, 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 one of the educational tools. So there's others. Great. Thank right. you. Yeah. This is fun. I'm just going to uh, uh, briefly and quickly, uh, uh, ideally, but subject to your questions, uh, just give you a sense of uh, what's going on with the governor and his budget uh, uh, and how it intersects with our work and our future work. And then we have the playbook uh, piece, and then we'll go into closed session. Okay. We have two items there. So the governor released his budget on January 10th, as he is constitutionally required uh, to. Um, before the release of that budget, however, he had released uh, a press release which really outlined his priorities uh, in the area of health. And you can see those reflected uh, in the budget. One is this notion of moving beyond um, the ACA uh, in creating a single purchasing of pool specifically for pharmaceuticals, which we'll talk about. Um, the second um, has to do with uh, expanding universal access uh, by covering more undocumented individuals. The third, uh, providing premium support for those individuals who are uncovered California, which is the health exchange for the state under the ACA. Um, the next having to do with, you know, outlining paths of single, single payer, and this is based on a piece of legislation that had been approved by the legislature uh, last year. And then finally, as we mentioned earlier, a Surgeon General, and that position's been filled. So you can see that uh, the state is proposing for next fiscal year uh, just shy of or over $104 billion. The majority of those funds, however, are federal and uh, special funds. Um, the, federal, the state government relies on federal dollars, intergovernmental transfers, et cetera, to really fund uh, the Medi-Cal program. So you can see only 22% of the state general fund goes into actually health care. So the major issues, and I've grouped these by uh, category. So we'll first uh, talk about coverage. So expanding um, Medi-Cal, uh, in this case it would be managed care, to 19 to 25 year olds. This will be the second time the state has uh, expanded coverage to the undocumented. Um, they started with children 0 to 18 uh, two years ago, and so this goes from 19 to 25. Um, you can see that the state uh, believes about 138,000 statewide. Uh, in Alameda, this would impact us directly because the county has the health tax program, which is for the remaining uninsured. Um, there are about 1,700 health tax, um, 19 to 25 year olds who would now be eligible for full scope Medi-Cal. Of those, you can see that 32% or just a little over 550 have AHS as a medical home. So all those individuals would transition onto Medi-Cal. Uh, similar to the expansion with 0 to 18 year olds, those individuals would have the option uh, to stay with us. Uh, and so we would continue to serve them, but we would be getting uh, Medi-Cal managed care uh, reimbursement. The second coverage um, has to do with covered California, um, and this is really trying to address affordability um, and expanding, uh, doing two things. First, um, having the state uh, put in a subsidy uh, for those individuals between 250 and 40 percent of the federal poverty level. It's quite modest at $10 um, per member per month uh, on average. And then for those individuals who are above 400 they are not eligible for any federal subsidy at all. The state would provide them a subsidy and it's averaged about 70 uh, uh, per month. 
really is to increase the number of, un of people who are insured. And um, the governor is proposing having a state individual mandate. And he believes that he's able to do this with just a majority of the legislature voting in favor of it. And this would essentially help to mitigate what has been what has been done at the federal level, which is to get rid of the penalty component right. of the federal individual mandate, right. which essentially means it has no teeth. So why have a mandate if there's no penalty? Which became the basis of the lawsuit that ended up. So, it's still an appeal now. Um, so the second area has to do with supplemental and uh, funding. The first uh, is Prop 56. Um, you may recall um, that this was on the state ballot about two years ago. It's an additional income tax on individuals who are wealthy to fund specifically Medi-Cal. So value-based payments are something we were talking about earlier. This is just an extension of this. So this creates a value-based payment program, we are not eligible uh, for the program as primary care because we're FQHC, but I think the importance of this is that the state's entree into value-based payments is not limited to public systems. They are doing it across the board. Um, the next has to do with GME uh, payments, and this is really, um, the state many, many years ago had a GME program for Medicare. I'm sorry. So if, if value-based payment is not available to FQHCs, is there an alternative methodology that's? She means for this particular pro program. For, for this particular for program. 56. Oh, right. so they're not available right now. Right. So, so this particular program, we already have value-based payment programs by virtue of the program we were talking about earlier. Right. So we have this piece. The state is interested in having similar models for non-FQHCs. Oh, I see. And so this would yeah. Um, so uh, this, the second uh, bullet is about uh, graduate med medical education. The state many years ago had GME for Medi-Cal. Uh, they got uh, rid of it for a variety of reasons. Um, this proposes to actually bring it back and so it helps support graduate medical education that goes, uh, that occurs in our public delivery systems and it would be about uh, just shy of $350 million um, to the public systems. Um, the next category um, has to do with pharmaceuticals. And so the state um, is really trying to do uh, two things. One, increase its uh, purchasing leverage for pharmaceuticals uh, within uh, the Medi-Cal program. It believes that it will be able to do that if it does uh, two things. One, um, it will create a special Medi-Cal rebate uh, fund program that will, in fact, they will garner all the rebates for, for uh, drugs. Currently, what happens to date, under Medi-Cal managed care, um, those funds are um, given to health plans to provide pharmacy services. Um, the health plans might get rebates. Um, delivery systems providers might get rebates. The state is actually interested in garnering those rebates because they're ultimately the purchaser of those drugs, right? And so uh, the state has estimated that they will get about $1.4 billion in rebates by actually uh, coordinating and having one centralized program where they're negotiating. And that's sort of related to the second bullet that you see here, which you know really will be carving out all of pharmacy from the Medi-Cal managed care plans. Currently today, dollars um, are given to those health plans in their rates to provide pharmacy services. 
and the health plans then contract with pharmacy benefit uh, firms, PBMs, that then contract with you know, the Walgreens and the CVSs of the world. Um, the state would revert back to fee-for-service for all pharmacy, and it would take over responsibility for ensuring that all Medi-Cal beneficiaries, be they in fee-for-service or Medi-Cal managed care, get pharmacy services, um, and then they would negotiate better prices, they believe, with uh, the, the drug manufacturers. Uh, the fourth sort of area um, has to do with uh, primarily um, uh, funding for EPDTI. Uh, I don't know why I did with that acronym there. But in any event, it's uh, funding to help for the diagnosis of you know, young people who have mental health issues. And this would be at the county level, but obviously the extent to which we um, serve this population, um, the county having additional dollars for this population obviously helps us. Um, the next area has to do with whole person care. We were talking about that earlier. Whole person care is a federal, federal program <coughs> under the waiver. What the state is proposing is to allocate $100 million of state <coughs> money really for the housing component. Remember, whole person care can't cover the housing. So this is critically important and, and helpful that uh, the state is going in this uh, direction. You know, certainly there would be an allocation. Uh, we don't know what the allocation methodology might look like, but presumably these dollars would be at um, the county level. Uh, and uh, you have here the Surgeon General, which you spoke about earlier. Uh, finally, there's housing and homelessness that are above and beyond the $100 million that is being put aside for supportive housing. Um, there are all of these other efforts that the governor is interested in supporting to really address uh, housing and homelessness uh, in the state. I won't go through, through them, but most of them really will be at the regional and the county level. And I think that's a lot of key takeaways. You know, we, um, Governor Brown um, uh, was, I think, very instrumental in getting the county back on a firm financial footing. I think his prudent nature. The state. Yeah, and the yeah. state too. Uh, <laughs> getting the state back on a, uh, a sound footing and his focus on making sure that the state had a reserve and a healthy reserve, you know, has certainly been um, helpful. You know, um, Health was not his primary uh, focus. Uh, other things were his focus. It's very clear that Governor Newsom, who comes from a community where, and he helped pilot one of the first health access programs, really thinks passionately about this. So you can see how he has prioritized health. He also understands, coming from San Francisco, the importance of housing and healthcare, which is why he has prioritized that. You know, the one area we will, will be focusing on has to do with the pharmacy uh, provisions in part because um, under current federal law, 340Bs cannot participate in um, uh, organized rebate programs or purchasing pools. Um, and that's because if we were, we would be double dipping because we're already getting a significant discount on the 340B side and to be participating in a purchasing pool would be further discounts. And so um, CAPH, um, California Association of Public Hospitals and Health Systems is looking at um, the two pharmacy-related provisions in the budget specifically to understand the impact 
um, to public hospital delivery systems, ours and others. Any questions? That part last night confused me. What part last the night? The whole pharmaceutical thing. Yes, uh huh. Like my healthcare advocate hat says, if the state's negotiating with drug companies, that's got to be good for the people. But then my AHS Board of Trustees hat said, wait, is she telling us this might be bad for us? Yeah. So elaborate a little bit on that. Like um, so I think there are financial implications. So um, going back to capitation, so currently pharmaceutical costs are within the capitation rate. And generally, they can range anywhere from 18 to 20% of a capitation, because they're, they're quite high. Oh. Right, um, and so, but, you know, if in fact you as a health plan are able to manage your pharmacy costs, well, who gains from that, the state or the health plan? The health plan, right, because the health plan maintains those dollars. Um, with 340B, um, you know, we're able to purchase um, our uh, prescription drugs at a reduced uh, amount, and with those dollars, the savings from those dollars, we reinvest them into programs um, for our population. And so those dollars, if in fact the state decides to go towards a purchasing pool, you know, we wouldn't be able to participate in that, so there's the whole issue around 340B, but and more importantly, the, the margins that um, are, which is what I think the state would call them, that the health plans might get as through virtue of the capitation rate and cost less than that capitation rate, or that we might get by virtue of reduced uh, expenditures on our pharmacies <laughs> as a result of 340B, all of those savings would accrue to the state. Now, the state would say, we understand that that might be a financial implication, but long term, as you were saying, it puts the state on a better footing to be able to negotiate better pharmaceutical rates across the state. Well, as Canada does. Yeah. Like Canada does. So does CHPH, um, I mean, is it, are they like being... Is it, is, it, is it being proactive in the sense that, yeah, what's bad for, in, in the short term, for probably like have a negative fiscal impact on our 340 uh, things, but it's good for the population. What can we do to make it win-win for both, like for the hospitals as well as for the state in that sense that some mechanism. So instead of resisting, are they resisting? I hope not. Mm. Sure. So first, this wouldn't be implemented until July of 2021. It's going to take a while. It's in the budget. So I wouldn't say we're resisting. I think first we're trying to understand the full ask, you know, components of the program. Doing our diligent due diligence uh, to find out what assumptions the state has made in terms of how it got uh, to its $1.4 billion figures. So I think there's all of that. And with any proposal, there's the opportunity for us to, I think, have uh, negotiated conversations through CAPH with the administration over what does it mean if this is the ultimate goal, there may be a number of ways to get to that goal with preserving not only the interests of the state in terms of leveraging its uh, purchasing power, but also in terms of ensuring that um, the public systems yeah. are still able to you know, participate in 340B and all of those other mm -hmm. initiatives. But it, it is a significant, I mean, it, you know, from a, from a policy perspective, it makes very good sense. Sure. 
it's hard to argue from a policy perspective. But like most things in life, it's not always about the policy. It's how you implement the policy. Yeah. It's the winners and losers in the policy. Yeah. And I, I agree with Andrew, and, and, uh, but I say it also, um, and forgive me if you talked about this, but um, it, 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 the lens through which you look at it matters, right? So if you're looking at it purely through the lens of, of drug pricing and drug costs, that's, you know, it, it, it's sort of a linear and a logical linear flow to say, if I can lower that cost for everybody for those drugs, that's good. When you look at what 340B does in terms of like giving you that cap space to not just take care of the drug costs, but also to cover other services that aren't either adequately reimbursed or reimbursed at all, that therein lies rub. If that if that delta yeah. goes away, right. it's not just that, you know, I lowered the drug costs, it's so it's okay services. that I take the money. Yeah. It's a delta for the other stuff right. that, that that was covering. So so the concept is, okay, so how do you make sure that that lens, that part of it uh, comes into that uh, discussion yeah. as well? And figure out then how, if it's not through this mechanism, then what other mechanism exists to make sure that this gets captured and covered. Exactly. And that has to be. So, is there like a timeline because of that, like it, with the 2021 um, implementation? Mm -hmm. So this year is going to be a big one for we talk, talking about like what, what what would the public hospitals yeah, I think be what, doing with I think a big part of the timeline is the, the budget cycle for the state. Right. So mm -hmm. this is his proposal that has to go through the legislature and there's a bunch of hearings that then will ensue <laughs> and a bunch of, you know, uh, um, administrative and uh, 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 stakeholder discussions that will transpire to then come up with what would then actually be the formal budget. Mm -hmm. And then it's execution that then happens after yeah. that. So, so it's sort of two big buckets of time. I think. So I, I just <coughs> make a point about uh, the new priorities. They're exciting, housing and, and health care. I think that I, I appreciate that you put them together because there's going to be a lot of policy discussion about social determinants and, and housing. And there is a uh, horrible tradition of sliding off of the connecting of the two. So there's a lot of, particularly in the suburbs of California, there's a lot of temptation to use uh, affordable housing dollars to create housing for firefighters and so <laughs> forth. Um, and, and, and in this county, again, I'll repeat what I said earlier this morning, we have not done a good job of prioritizing our housing dollars based on social uh, determinants. So I think it's in an interest of this system to uh, monitor these, pol these policy discussions as they move forward and maybe even take positions related to the connecting of those two. You know, one of the point uh, I would point out is, uh, you know, this board will be establishing its co-applicant board to oversee the health care for the homeless right. center, which will be carved out as a sort of standalone operation, you know, within AHS. So that would certainly be another opportunity to um, create at least a mechanism or structure by which you can sort of continue to weigh in on the issue. Thank you. I had a question. Um, Going back to the uh, expansion of Medicaid or Medicare Medi-Cal to the 18 to 25 year old, uh, uh, and, and the numbers you showed, we had 32 percent of those that would, that are currently under health pack are with us. Um, so a couple questions: Where are the other? Uh, what is that? 68 percent, and. Um, is it assumed that we would then be getting reimbursed at the Medi-Cal rate for those individuals? Is that, is that better for us or worse than Health Pack? So uh, I would say it would be uh, better for us. Remember, Health Pack is a 
block grant. We get a set amount of money to take care of the population irrespective of any changes in the uh, enrollment, either increasing or decreasing. No, it's not based on population. It is based on population. It's not based on any population growth. So it's, it's, a, it's a block grant. You get a set amount of money. To per, take per patient? No. No. No, oh. no, no. It's not capitation. It's a block grant. So a block grant is essentially you get $15 million to take care of all of these people. And if enrollment grows over the course of the year, you still get $15 million to take care of those individuals. But it, the amount of money is not specific to any particular individual. But it's only better for us to the extent that those people actually enroll in Medi-Cal. And I think that was one concern with the fear, certainly fear factor, mm -hmm. that people are scared to enroll in Medi-Cal. And we saw that with the zero to 18, but then with the 0 to 18, there was no implication with health pack because they already were eligible to get, like, Medi-Cal through the gateway. So this would be unique. I mean, this would be something we haven't experienced before, right, where a population who was previously <coughs> completely not eligible for any sort of Medi-Cal now could get full scope, right? No, they're eligible for restricted. So every, oh, restricted. Right. So every undocumented person in California is eligible for restricted Medi-Cal. But this is about them getting full scope. Right, right, right. Yeah. Full scope. I just want to make sure... So that someone on health pack can also get restricted Medi-Cal right. to date uh, 19 to 25 year old just as 0 to 18 year old. I, I was not here in this county when um, Alameda did the transition from 0 to 18. I was in another uh, county. But we worked very closely with the social services agency, right? Uh, number two, the way the state implemented it, it essentially got information from each of the counties asking for those counties that had um, income uh, health access programs. I'm sending them letters saying, we understand that you are in a health access program in your county and that you have a medical home. <clears throat> we have that information. We're going to assign you to a health plan and we're going to keep you in that medical home. You have the ability to change that medical home after you've been enrolled in your health plan, but the idea um, with 0 to 18, and I suspect it will be the same thing for 19 to 25 year olds, was to minimize disruption, right? Um, so we know that uh, unless, of course, the state takes a different tactic, and I can't imagine that it would because at least in the, the county that I was in, that was actually a very smooth transition uh, for those children. Um, we can certainly um, advocate for a similar type of uh, transition for those individuals. Now. Once they are in, in with their medical home, they may decide to make a change. But they can make that change now in Health Pack. There's nothing that prevents them from making a change now in Health Pack to go from one medical home to another. Now, the medical homes that are in Health Pack, there are the four medical homes associated with AHS, all of the CHCN clinics, oh, right, of course. Uh, and other clinics that the county contracts with. There are a total of about 28,000 um, health pack participants uh, in the county, and we have around 8,600 uh, of them. Yeah. We have 8,600 of them for, of total. Our, uh, for that total that we're responsible for everything, uh, but for everybody, non-primary care, we're responsible for it, right? Right, I, I, I was talking about the medical home, not the yeah. actual services. Right. Okay. So the medical home distribution is, you know, we have about 8,600 of the 28,000. When it comes to the actual service delivery, we are responsible for not only providing primary care and specialty and inpatient for those who have selected us, the 86,000, 
but we are the sole specialty provider, inpatient provider for the entire population, irrespective of the medical home they've selected. And pardon my ignorance, but I mean, isn't Health Pack what we used to call uh, uh, County CMSP. Medical uh, CMSP? CMSP, right, right. Mm -hmm. So why, if there's a dramatic reduction in the number of people in Health Pack because there's a big increase in those eligible for Medi-Cal, why wouldn't the county reduce that total amount? Well, it's not the total. The total amount isn't eligible. Pardon me? The total amount. When you say the total amount in the budget? The, yeah, the, 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 the if people are eligible for Medi-Cal who aren't uh, now or full scope who aren't now, why wouldn't the county say then we expect that you wouldn't be in our remaining uninsured program and ergo we don't need as much funding for it? Are you are you, I, I wasn't sure that he was talking funding. Are you talking funding or number of people? Or both? Usually we get a block grant from the county to, to, to cover these, these lives, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's, you said that's a fixed amount regardless of how many lives are in the system. Right. Mm -hmm. So if, if the number of lives in the system goes down by 500 or whatever, 1,700, why would the county still give us that same block of money? Okay, so um, the county made a decision. I wasn't here, but this is what I understand. So this question came up uh, prior to January 2014 with the implementation of the ACA. So the county had the health pack program, a number of individuals were enrolled, a significant portion of them migrated onto Medi-Cal. Mm -hmm. um, there was the concern at the time, well, you know, just as the state is reducing realignment to counties, you know, because people are getting Medi-Cal, right. couldn't, couldn't the county reduce health pack dollars um, because the population is being reduced? Um, the county made a decision not to do that. The county made a decision to then take the remaining allocation and split the allocation in two to say, we're actually interested in not only providing funds to safety net providers to serve this population, but also to transform their delivery system. So they actually developed something like a value-based program. Mm -hmm. So our total allocation for Health Pack is about $33 million, and about a little over half of that is the block grant, and then the remaining portion is essentially performance-based activities hmm. where we have to improve HEDIS scores or we have to make um, data quality improvements. And so the idea was we want, they wanted to keep the money in the systems for mm -hmm. safety nets to help drive transformation. And so, in, and I think that's been helpful, you know, on both sides so that we continue to get the dollars, but we're, we're held accountable for meeting certain performance measures. That, that helpful? It's like yeah. a legacy program. Yeah. I've asked the same question and the answer was more or less it was like a legacy program. So it's like since we don't have to pay for the actual care, we're going to do something else, but we're yeah. still going to keep doing the same amount Best of money to the same care. people. Yeah. Cool. But I think my concern wasn't so much about the PCP assignment, it was about people in this age group in particular electing to actually enroll in Medi-Cal and just because, right, because the health pack is definitely, yeah, right, exactly, like how, how good we think that the um, uh, enrollment rates will really be, yeah. yeah. So that's why I think it'll, it'll be, uh, I can't imagine that the state would, uh, it would be in the state's best interest to send out Medi-Cal applications to everyone 
and to say, hey, fill out the application, make an appointment, send it in. Because they're not going to get the 138,000 people enrolled. So you think they'll do a flip? They'll like do they very sim something yeah. very simple to what they did with the kids, right. which is to essentially take the data and enroll them into the program, send them the information stating that they are enrolled, because they will have already met the income eligibility requirements by virtue of the fact that the um, income requirements for most of the state's um, access programs are within the same guidelines for Medi-Cal eligibility. Um, the counties will actually have the information. If they have programs, they'll know where they live, they have their telephone number, so they have all the information to contact them through the health pack system of record, and so it will be an easy transition for them. Hmm. If I was a state, that was, that's what I would do, because I would want to show from day one that you have 138,000 people enrolled and getting services. Well, enrolled. Whether they get services is another thing, because that will be based on whether or not they decide to avail themselves of the services. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Okay. Anything else? It doesn't have to be. No, that's fine. It's, I mean, it's, it's an exciting time. Okay. You know, we have, we have a governor who I think his yeah. values are aligned with ours um, on housing and health care, and, and I just think it's great. I like the fact that, to Lewis's earlier point about local jurisdictions and housing and affordable housing, I like the fact that he's linking their housing dollar, their transportation dollars to meeting their housing, you know, elements. I remember in Alameda County when I worked for the board when there was this debate over the housing element, and cities like Pleasanton and Places like that had absolutely no interest in adding any affordable housing, and it was sad. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so hopefully we'll see a, she a sea change. And uh, so uh, I had. What, do we have time for one question? Sure, of course. Uh, what What are our hopes with the state surgeon general? I mean, are we looking at oh, yeah. a new oh, blueprint yeah. um, for that? We already have, like, from the state health. Department of Blueprint for the state, but like what, what new, what, what opportunities are there with the Surgeon General? You know, I mean, I think she has a clean slate, and I suspect that she will be given a lot of latitude Good. to work with um, not only the local jurisdictions, but really also on the federal level. Because I think that a lot of the things that we've been talking about, you know, for, for, for the Surgeon General to be able to do the work around social determinants will be policy changes, yeah. you know, around those kinds of things. And so I assume at some point um, she will outline um, her priorities after she's done a series of learning sessions and listening sessions with uh, key entities. So um, I don't know what those components will, will be, but certainly, you know, we in this county, and um, I'm sure CAPH uh, will probably try to uh, arrange a time for her to come and, and meet with the public hospital systems yeah. so that we can give um, her that input. Yeah, I just hope really that the anchor institution being like building community resilience and being like developing a culture of health and some there's like some deep into like a lot of generative work that happens with that and I'm so excited about. Yeah, and I think uh, her, her, her history and her background. Yeah, she's fabulous. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is what she lives and breathes uh, in many respects, so, yeah. She's a keynote speaker for America's Institute Hospital had their annual conference in San Francisco uh, this past June and she was a keynote speaker and talked about a lot of her work in ACE 
uh, adverse childhood experiences mm -hmm. and, and uh, um, uh, the work that she's been doing in the Bayview area in San Francisco to, to uh, call attention to that and then to uh, talk about some effective clinical interventions and community-based interventions for uh, uh, addressing those, those uh, challenges, identifying them first off and having everybody uh, a proactive effort to get people to collect those ACE scores uh, and then to then work to uh, provide resources for people to, so to get them. When the, the attorney general position was created and filled, was there a, are there um, some legislative mandates or authorities that were provided for the attorney for, for the special general? Um, no. So this is a new position um, right. that the governor is creating. So there was called blue acute care power fifth floor. Hmm. Called blue acute care power fifth floor. Yeah, the, there was no the, regulatory okay. or legislative framework. Um, I think, however, the, the governor um, understands um, that social determinants are so, um, addressing them are so critical to improving health that it was his opportunity to say, I want to go beyond just looking at sort of healthcare delivery and public health, but have someone who can perhaps straddle both of those. So, Becky, you want to tell us what you were trying to tell me? I was just saying the fifth floor is uh, um, uh, ICUs. Uh, so, so, uh, so it's a, uh, respiratory arrest or uh, yeah. it's a, it's, so it's a code to bring the medical team together. Uh, yeah. And currently in the ICU today, we have quite a few patients on one-to-one -one because they're critically ill. Um, as we close this out, just uh, keep telling us as a board what we can do okay. to be part of, influence, um, encourage these these changes, um, and, and and what decisions we can make to have to have them have an impact on our system. I think that the information is wonderful, uh, but getting to do something with it is is even better. And as a board, we always we always want that. Well, I will tell you one thing, and, and a good part of this discussion, we'll, we'll figure out ways to do it in a sort of efficient way uh, in full board meetings when you know time is of the essence and we have a lot of uh, um, business items we have to get to. But uh, just this discussion and kind of hearing you articulate some of your priorities around uh, the things that we've been talking about today becomes the type of information and input that Tangerine and I take back to CAPH, who then becomes the arm for all of us to go to the state agencies saying, this is what our our, our member organizations are interested in in their board. So, so you are you are in fact doing that in a in a indirect way. We're not asking you to go to the state and lobby for these things, uh, but we are conveying this and it become a, a, a set of principles and or ideals that we uh, that then result in programs that then allow us to do these sorts of things. So, so that's one way. But we'll continue to make sure that that's uh, the case. And in fact, uh, we even talked about some ideas around. And we've, some of you have been around longer know that we've had the case where CAPH has then come directly to you to say, here are the things that we're working on on the state and federal level. Yeah. Uh, we're doing this uh, sort of most um, uh, directly with uh, Tangerine now. Uh, but we will have the occasion that uh, if, it, if it's warranted and there's something really pressing, we'll bring the CAPH folks uh, before you as well. Right. But we'll think of other ways as well.
and then just a little bit of a, a clarification on uh, the agenda and calendar for the next uh, two hours. Um, we do need an executive session of the board just to go over a couple of um, follow-on discussions that we've tried to have and haven't had time to close the loop on for you around um, your uh, monthly report that was a discussion we started and we never finished. Mm -hmm. And I brought some material for them to take a look at just so that they can do that before you walk in and sure. we can Please. continue. Um, and that should just take us like 15 minutes to take a look at. So uh, the first will be an executive session and closed session. Uh, both of those are closed, but uh, first an executive session. Um, I'm doing this because we do have some new board members and also to try and close the loop on the steps that we were going to take with this particular document. And um, let me make sure everybody has a copy of the schedule for uh, QPSC. Sorry, I'm away from the microphone. Let's see if you can stand up. Um, so the intent behind this document that we're talking about now is to be able to have a rhythm to the work that we do and it's also to anticipate better the things that we feel are important to talk about within each of the committees. And so after our last retreat, one of the things that happened was um, I tried to capture uh, what are some of those broad AHS operational goals that I think are always there in front of us? The strategy for achieving this is going to change, but these are the, I hope, these are always going to be in front of us. They're almost like the overarching framework of what we have to be um, uh, addressing. And the second piece was just to always remember that we have these pillars that we are, or values or themes that we look at. And, the, and then this is where it gets a little bit more um, specific. Um, when you look at this particular graph, this is what was provided when we began to do our budget planning. And this is such a wonderful graph. It's really helpful. And it would be great to have this um, completed because it's only about the financial pieces. And um, I just want to give Tony, Tony's gone. Okay, Tony could have a, a section here on HR, and so I tried to fill that in. And again, um, we haven't come back to this to finalize this. The next set of pages were about the specific areas that we have those overarching goals uh, and, and how we're going to accomplish them. And what I tried to do... Can you go back? Sure, sure. The, when, you, when I look at that quarter two box, right. you've got finance, HR, but I just want to point out the planning and operations, annual forecast, assessment, develop, volume forecast. I, um, yeah, I just the, the four boxes you have, uh, or three, 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 three subject. They don't necessarily fit our, they our don't. committees. They don't. So we, we they should don't do have that. Like an operations committee. Right. I mean, finance a lot of a lot of it is heard there. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting we need a new committee. I'm just saying, but like yeah. things like land use, leases, yeah. the 
Where does that stuff, go? You know, yeah, where does the that facilities. go? Yeah, we, we, it doesn't land anywhere unless we're having to make a purchase or enter into a contract or yeah. an acquisition. And so, mm -hmm. and, yeah. and that's that. That wasn't something I had uh, in this. I borrowed this from the existing right. um, handout, and so maybe that is a way to think about these major buckets of activity. However, um, one of my pain points is. Let's just talk about land use. Where does that belong if it's in any committee? And if it's in finance, okay, let's put it there. Um, if it's not, where? And, and let's agree to when we, we talk about that. Um, so for those, you're both new, so I'm just making sure that you understand why this is up here. And the other is that the original intent was to place it in the front of this particular binder because as you notice we now have in front of us each time we're here the ability to take a look at what was the existing budget um, what was our strategy um, even the org chart is in here which is helpful to know who's who and where they sit um, and so the plan is to finalize this and place it at the very beginning and then what I just gave you right now from Taft, um, he took this uh, to heart uh, at a level that I think is, is really important to appreciate. What he did is for QPSC, he identified the topics that need to be covered at every single QPSC, Q, QPSC meeting. And then there were these open session reports at the bottom. If you take a look at that, um, I think he took on uh, this very seriously and said, you know, in quality, we have to be looking at um, some of the things we do that are really unique to us, some of the things that are um, uh, related to our ability to to be providing quality care um, and also to look at the impact of Sapphire because that's such a huge endeavor right now, right? So <coughs> this is his master plan for the year in QPSC. And let me just stop there and see if this makes sense that this is a valuable thing for the committees to do. And, and if so, then it becomes, I think, much more comfortable for all of us to know, wow, my committee isn't talking about this, but maybe somebody else's committee is, and we're assured that all of the topics we're concerned about are really getting addressed. Because ultimately, um, I think one other reason why this came up, not just the complexity of what we do, and how difficult it is to get our arms around everything that's going on, but also not to get surprised anymore by things that might fall through, or just we didn't think about it enough, or we just didn't plan to talk about this enough. And, um, you know, land use, that's a really good example. Where does that belong? And what should we be anticipating for that? So I won't go through each one of these, but let, let's see if I can go to the quality one. So, so this was the draft, right? And we know at every single meeting we have to talk about the dashboard and um, the uh, 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 the credentialing reports. I didn't put that up there, but he did. Um, but you can see there's a couple of other things in the boxes below 
that might be the discussion for those meetings. And I hope each committee chair is comfortable looking at what are those extra things that you might want to calendar through the year to talk about. I'm going to pause there. Make sense? Yeah, I think, um, I think I'm finally situated where I could, uh, as the chair of finance, I feel like I could start <laughs> to do this. Yeah. And I would, I would I just, yeah. I would just recommend giving some, for chairs to give some thought about how to do that yeah. with staff. So yeah. Uh, yeah. I check in monthly with staff on the agenda prior to right. the meeting. I think I would want to have this part of that process. No, no, totally, totally agree, yeah. And, yeah. and there might be things on this that um, at the end of the day really don't belong in that particular committee. They may, they may just only belong for the larger board to discuss. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's okay. It's just to finalize this and not have it as a draft. Um, Promising to the ER, level 2, ECA, 6 minutes. Promising to the ER, level 2, ECA, 6 minutes. To, to finalize this and not have draft, yeah. each committee chair should think it through. Mm -hmm. And this was the easiest format for Taft. Whatever format is easy for you, um, this is this is key to put into our playbook and keep it at the front end so yep. that we know what's going on. And all committees have a calendar, and we have what we do on a regular basis and then some education or something which yeah. are timely like at this time we'll be talking yeah. about this retirement stuff or Gatsby or this yeah. or that or the other but I think like being intentional to like sometimes we pick out things that we feel like they should just not be restricted to the full committee if we hear it and say this has to come to the full board so closing right. that loop on that so right. each committee kind of doing that and then figuring out which of these might be actually good like to do a short report right and follow yeah, so, yeah, go ahead now. I also think that um, one of my experiences doing this for one year now is uh, that Having a lens into what other committees mm -hmm. we're working on is mm -hmm. really important. And this whole committee is really, really important. Finance committee is very, very yeah. important. If you don't sit on either of those, then having a lens into what's being covered there so that it, you can educate yourself to the questions you might want to ask. Right. And knowing that that's being covered also, I mean, if you're really curious about something, you can always look inside our... Um, you know, online dashboard or, or, or online uh, portal to go look at materials. Right. But um, this last month, uh, TAP brought the um, human rights clinic uh, man, uh, physician. I just have to tell you all what an amazing thing they do. And I know we don't have time to go into that. I'm just saying, were it not for my being on that committee and knowing about it through that meeting, I, I would just... I would not know the depth of work that they're doing to serve that population and what a vital role they play in people having asylum in this country. Right. It's stunning. Um, and so uh, we can't all be on every subcommittee. We can't all you know, go to every single thing that's out there on the calendar. But this at least now you know from TAF putting this out there yeah. that 
on a yearly basis, we'll try to at least visit that particular clinic and understand what's going on, mm -hmm. what's needed. I mean, he was really clear on just the challenge of a growing population of people needing asylum and how many attorneys in the Bay Area refer cases to the clinic um, for their um, evaluation of a person's uh, request for asylum. So the fact that we're doing that, I mean, I think we should have like a film crew follow him for a day and do another film around just what he does and just the power of, of uh, the kind of service that he provides to the community. So I close by saying for each chair, I'm happy to create this version or that version or any version that you wish of the document. Um, but I do think that we as a board need to own this and then put it inside our playbook um, because it's missing. It, it's really supposed yeah. to be kind of at the beginning of yeah. this, and, and we intended to do that. So that I we think just the it. template is what I mean. Yeah, yeah. sure, yeah, absolutely. Great. And I can I can get this one from Tapped. So if this you want, I'll send you both. This is an all-clear method for cold blue, acute care problem, physical care. This is an all-clear method for cold blue, acute care problem, fifth floor. Any questions? Because I know for the new people in the room, this might have been. That was actually helpful. Was that helpful? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Can we take our playbooks home? No. No, because <laughs> then she's going to leave. The deal was I put it out every meeting, and I wouldn't have to make new ones. If you take them home, I'll never see them. Yeah. No, you don't make have to make new ones. Yeah, if we take it home, it's on but us. But I think Ron's right. We probably would. We yeah. would forget them. As long as I lose eight out of nine pins. But here's the different. I'm sorry. The pins kind of come with the job. Here's a request, though. Maybe in our um, board effect, there's just one place that's called Playbook. It's already it's there. there. Oh, okay, so that's yeah. it. Let's show you. Those who don't want to read on the screen and want to, like, yeah. oh, with a paper paper. I'm an old paper. I know. I'm old. That's fine. That's I, I, I thank you, by the way, that we didn't finish this work and that you're, we need to you're holding us to finishing it. Yeah. I think it's important. Yeah. I, I would also recommend that our board chairs um, uh, present to your committee, you know, what you want added and ask what additions they may, may want. And in okay. fact, I don't think it would be a violation of the Brown Act if board chairs via email ask the committee members to, to respond to them with things they want on the calendar for the year and then you, and yeah. It, yeah just don't cc and reply all and then the board chair can can bring that back to the next committee right. meeting and say okay here's here's the list that i got from folks right. let's let's map it out i think mm -hmm. that might be a really good way to do it i think that's good and and my request for um del vecchio is to go back to the senior leadership team and and take this one page yeah. and please consider having Tony enter his activities for the rest of the year. They're not all there. They're just for a couple of the quarters. Yeah, I just want to be clear. So this tool was one we, we share it every year. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was just a sort of a high level uh, uh, framing of the types of things. It was, it was really to show you how operational planning happens over right. the course of the year and, and what's happening. And, and, and so we just selected a few sort of things that, that happen. So it's not, it's not, it's far from complete for everything. I mean, right. finance is a lot more going on than right. just the budget. Uh, HR is a lot more going on. And, uh, and certainly for the board, obviously it is. This was just designed around the lens of well, how we do budgeting we, uh, for the organization. Yeah, but we love it. And yes, we would like 
a different one of these for each of those subject areas. So let's have sense. one with all four quarters for HR. Right. So let's have a separate one with all four quarters for finance. And that's where I was going. What, yeah. what I'm saying is I don't think that's problematic to do. I think the challenge will be with all of this stuff is like, what level of granularity will be helpful uh, uh, to you? Because what, what, it's just a matter of managing expectations. Because I think we can do something like this, and we could easily make this like four separate sheets of paper for every single area. So we're doing high level for you with the understanding that it is it's 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 high level. Yes, and it doesn't include everything. On the cadence that the administration is on in sure. running the organization, sure. that's the point. Is yeah. we know what we should be really paying attention to and what's going to be presented to us in quarter one, quarter two, quarter three. You know, we get that now for budget. I mean, it's really, it's so helpful for budget. And sure. so mm -hmm. I know the cadence isn't always the same. Yeah. For it's HR, a, you've yeah. got contracts that come up periodically. And so it's uh, not. Correct. And I, and I get that. So, so it's a matter of like, uh, yeah, the construct is, 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 is what sort of things happen on a routine cyclical Correct. basis and right. we could we could do that which would help to inform what you're working on i think that's totally okay but then yeah let's understand that it won't be completely exhaustive and it won't include right. things that are not that don't lend themselves to a cyclical yeah, yeah. basis yes. totally get it. and so we could, we could help with that yeah. and, and then we have to take ownership for like you know, like this, like the human rights clinic, that's not going to appear in this. Right. It's just right. something that that committee should actually know about and talk about and, you know, be able to um, anticipate that there's, there's going to be a presentation about that. Yeah, and, and that may be the, uh, the that's, that's the chair's prerogative. Because yeah. he, he selected human rights, right. he could have easily done homeless, he could have easily done uh, any, any number, number of things. things. Right. I, yeah. There's just, there's a lot going on. I, I actually want to kind of encourage you, you guys. You're, you're very committed people. You meet a lot, you talk about a lot, you care about all these things. You have been with those, so you just want to make sure that you don't try yeah. to uh, uh, know everything because I feel like you will, you'll, you'll drive yourselves crazy. Uh, and, and I'd rather not have you drive yourselves crazy. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, no, I understand your point and I think we can help with that. If I may propose, and I think we did this before, so maybe I would encourage, uh, we actually then put some hard uh, uh, sort of deadlines on this, but we could have, just as uh, um, Trustee Chihuahua Sigan uh, just mentioned, uh, is we have the chair work with the executive mm -hmm. for each of these areas and then come up with a straw per, uh, 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 template for each yep. of the committees to review and then bring yeah. forward. That sounds yeah. great. And, and whichever format that takes, that's great. I sure. just hope that we can be consistent at least about this picture mm -hmm. that's here. So I think that's driven by your team to have that provided to us. The other will be driven by the chair. So in other words, tell us what the cycle of planning is among your leadership team, uh -huh. just like you did for this, right? Okay. And let the chairs and their committees work on the calendaring of when they want to talk about what. I think I understand. Yeah. I think I followed. Th th this okay. is just a calendar, whereas yours is the big picture strategy. Sure. Okay. okay. Makes sense? I think so. I'll, I'll follow up with I'll follow. <laughs> yeah, I'll Thank okay. you. All right. Good. Thank you. Is that right? Fantastic. Any other questions? Oh, okay. No. okay. All right. I do believe it's time to adjourn to a closed session, am I right? Yes. Do we, do we have public comment? We do not. And there's two items from closed session. Now, one is a performance evaluation uh, uh, with the uh, chief executive officer, and the uh, second is a, a matter of litigation uh, involving uh, AHS and ASERA.